up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me, as always, is Ben Fisher. What's up, Ben? Not much, man. You know, I got a paycheck today. You know, the first thing I did with it? Bought a lot of magic cards? Well, yeah, but specifically, I went home and I ordered the missing pieces to Elk EDH featuring oh, Giganta the Wellspring. Nice. I'm I'm excited to see that deck in action. We should uh we should jam that over Cockatrice or something. I'd absolutely be down. Maybe we should get some of our Discord members in on it. Yeah, that could be really cool. Well, everybody, this is episode number thirteen, the Zendikar Rising format breakdown. But before we get to that, we have some very exciting news to oh, announce. Oh yeah, we do. You already got a taste of this uh, if you didn't skip the intro. But we have a new look. We have a new sound. And on top of those two things, we have a brand new sponsor in MTGA Zone. We're super excited to be partnering with the folks over there. Um, it's kind of the best place to go for all your written MTG needs. They have really good articles on both constructed and limited, and you can just get all the content you need over there. Their writers are great, and we're super excited to be bolstering their limited content over there. Absolutely. I've long been going to their site just for the occasional deck tech or if i'm looking for some random new deck to try out in historic that kind of thing and well you know it turns out they're all really cool people and i'm very excited to be working with them i'm also going to be writing a few articles for them here and there i put one up about the arena tinkerers cube a little while ago and expect some more coming in the near future yeah congrats to that by the way i think we mentioned it in one of the other earlier episodes maybe last week or the week before but uh, mm. it's really cool and yeah we're, we're both just super hyped for this for those who are wondering, the new art is by Ashadon or at Riptide Pro Lab on Twitter. Go give him some love and let us know what you think of the new look. We're super stoked about it. <laughs> it's a whole rebrand. Just in time for the new format. Yeah, honestly, the timing couldn't have been better. We've been working this over for the last few weeks, and I don't think we could have picked a better timing. Yeah, no, this is honestly just perfect. So along those lines, feel free to join our Discord. We have a free Discord server over on our Twitter account or on the Patreon page or in the episode description as well. You can get the, the link to that. It's growing steadily and we've been having some good conversation over there with the new format about to break wide open. We are very excited to be discussing that with all of our community members. Yeah, it's going to be a great place to share deck lists or ask about draft picks or just kind of get hyped for the, uh, the upcoming set. We've been talking about our lives, too, and how we've been dealing with COVID, staying in touch. And it's nice to have a community during these uh, these pretty challenging times. Absolutely. And if it's your cup of tea, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Um, if you're interested in giving back to the show, that's the place to do it. We are hoping and planning to take everything we get from the Patreon and just dump it back into the community through giveaways and things of that nature. So if that's your thing and you feel like helping us out in that arena, that's where to do it. Arena, I get it. I knew you were going to comment on that. <laughs> How could I not? How about we get into the crack and draft type thing? Yeah, let's do it. So we have our first ever Zendikar Rising crack and draft type thing. We're taking this approach as a pack one, pick one. So keep that in mind as we're reading the cards. For this episode, probably the next episode or two as well, we're going to be reading out all the cards just to get everybody familiar with them, including ourselves. So mm -hmm. let's start with our commons. We have a Zulaport Duelist that is a blue mana for a 1-1 with Flash, Human Rogue at common. When Zulaport Duelist enters the battlefield, up to one target creature gets minus two, minus O oh until end of turn. Its controller mills two cards. Hmm. It's a fine card for the blue-black mill deck, I guess. 
Yeah, it's also a rogue, notably. And having flash is always a nice little upside. It's kind of a combat trick staple to a creature. If your creature is about to trade with theirs, flash this in. And again, are rogues really trading that often? I don't know. Interested to see where this one falls. Yeah, it's only a 1-1. Not something I'm excited to be first picking. Next up, we have Marauding Blight Priest. This is 2 and a black for a 3-2 Vampire Cleric at common. Whenever you gain life, each opponent loses one life. So this is kind of your uh, Blood Artists, or, well, I guess not Blood Artists, the, um, uh, what's the name of that enchantment? The Black Enchantment, that... Yeah, Sanguine Blood, something... Yeah, that one. (laughs) I I always get the two mixed up. They both do, Me too. It's the combo pieces, whatever that one is. Yeah, this is a solid effect on a pretty playable body. I I think this will probably see a home in the Cleric's deck. Next up, we have Cleric of Chill Depths. This is one and a blue for a Merfolk Cleric at common. It's a 1-3, and whenever Cleric of Chill Depths blocks a creature, that creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. It's a solid little blocker. Again, not super excited to first pick it, but it's a decent body at two mana and can turn your opponent's attackers off for a turn. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this. Buying time and maybe chumping with this is an option, but I prefer to keep my cards on the battlefield. That's fair. Speaking of keeping cards on the battlefield, next up is the really the only blue removal spell at common, Bubble Snare. This is one blue for an enchantment aura at common. It has Kicker for two and a blue. We'll uh, discuss the mechanics a bit more in a bit, but essentially this means you can pay an additional two and a blue as you cast a spell to get an extra f- effect. So, Bubble Snare, one blue, Kicker two and a blue, Enchant Creature. Whenever When Bubble Snare enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, tap target creature, or sorry, tap Enchanted Creature, an enchanted creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. Yeah, this is the cheapest we've seen this effect in as long as I can remember. Granted, you have to put this on a tap creature for it to be, you know, truly effective. But when you kick it at four, it's still a pretty fine removal spell. That's about the rate that we've seen this type of thing going for. Now, notably, a lot of these creatures in this set have different activated or, or triggered abilities. And potentially, they can be decent on blocking as well. So this isn't one blue killer creature. You're going to have to put some work in to, to really tap something down and prevent it from really impacting the board. But I think this is probably the best blue common. Next up, we have Kabira Outrider. This is three and a white for a human warrior at common. It's a three, three. And when Kabira Outrider enters the battlefield, target creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn for each creature in your party. So on its own, it gives plus one, plus one. It is a warrior, which counts towards your party. So if you have no other party members, it does give a plus one, plus one at the very least. Eh. Yeah, this is interesting. It, party almost reminds me of Ascend, for those that remember back to uh, Ixalan and uh, all, all that nonsense. So the, the, before Ixalan came out, the question was, how easy will it be to get 10 permanents on the battlefield to trigger Ascend and turn on all your stuff? Party's kind of the same way. How easy will it be to get a full party? Will it be difficult to keep things on the battlefield? Will, will this be a more aggressive format where you're trading creatures off often? Or is this going to be a more grindy format where maybe players get the chance to develop a board and they end up having full parties pretty frequently? We're going to see a lot of cards that uh, get extra value when they have a full party. And this one especially, if this is a 4-mana 3-3 that gives a creature plus 3-3 or maybe even 2-2, that's a pretty solid rate with a relevant creature type. Yeah, and it will buff itself, so it can enter as a 4-mana four 4-4 four, if you have no other creatures at all. But It is just one, till end of turn. That's true. But one other thing to consider is the way a lot of these f- like for each creature in your party effects work. Almost all of them, I think all of them actually, can kind of be blown out by removal spells 
or not maybe not blown out that might be too strong but you can have the effect dampen drastically depending on the effect by removal spells if you cast this and kabira outriders on the stack and your opponent says i don't want you giving that plus two plus two to your other creature i'm gonna kill that creature i mean it'd probably just be better to wait until you target something and then kill that but that's mm-hmm. maybe a bad example but there are a lot of them and we'll see coming forward actually one of the cards in this pack is, is an example of this yeah so next up we have skyclave sentinel this is a colorless three mana so just three generic mana for a 2-3 artifact creature gargoyle at common it has kicker for four generic it has flying and defender if skyclave sentinel was kicked it enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters on it as long as skyclave sentinel has a plus one plus one counter on it it can attack as though it didn't have defender this is interesting so if you just printed me a common colorless three mana two three flying that is a great card and limited yeah this has the drawback of having defender and kicking this is going to be, it's going to take a while. You're going to need to get up to seven mana somehow. But if there are other ways of putting a 1-1 one, one counter on this, then you've got yourself a 3-4 flyer for a relatively low cost. And we'll see later on that there are plenty of ways to give counters. I don't know if this is going to be guaranteed to have a home in the black-green counters deck, but it's probably playable. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of these colorless cards you tend to think of as, this doesn't lock me into a color. And... I guess Skyclave Sentinel technically doesn't do that. It still has a home in the the black plus one plus one counters sub theme going around the set. And so I think you're probably not going to want to be taking this as a colorless card, but maybe that's a bit of a hot take. I don't know. Mm -hmm. If you think about there was a uh, three mana two two flyer with kicker four in Dominaria. And that one I kicked a a solid percent of the time, maybe 40 percent. I cast that with kicker. In which case, this is a, a pretty decent card, too. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, if you're putting this in the ramp deck, like you're probably going to get there most of the time. Anyway, next up, we have Grotag Bug Catcher. This is one in red for a 1-2 Goblin Warrior creature at common. It has Trample, and whenever Grotag Bug Catcher attacks, it gets plus one, plus zero until end of turn for each creature in your party. So, of course, the joke here is that it is a warrior, so you're always getting at least plus one, plus O. Oh. So if you curve this into a three drop that is a party member that isn't a warrior, importantly, you'll attack with this on turn three, and it'll be a two mana, three, two trample. That's probably decent. It's nothing exciting. I'm still taking bubble snare out of this pack. Yeah, same. I think bug catcher is going to be kind of like a C level card in the black red party deck. Like you're going to want them. But next up is tuck tuck rubble fort. It's two and a red for a wall creature at common. It's a zero three with defender and reach and creatures you control have haste. No, thank you. <laughs> I have never been impressed with this kind of effect. It, it just doesn't really do much. I don't think it's worth a card to give all your creatures haste unless the format really calls for it. Now, there's some formats where that is good, but I don't think this is one of them. Yeah. Next up is Pyroclastic Helion. It's four and a red for a four or five Helion at common. When Pyroclastic Helion enters the battlefield, you may return a land you control to its owner's hand. When you do, Pyroclastic Helion deals two damage to each opponent. Yeah. Now, this is my kind of creature. It, it, it's, you know, a solid body for a solid cost. And it does have supposedly a, a drawback, but it's a May ability, right? For returning a land. And of yeah. course, uh, I think people will often do that as it can ping. This doesn't let you play a six drop the turn after, but let's say you curved out on turns three and four with landfall creatures. Well, uh, now you're either guaranteed to hit landfall next turn, or if you're at five lands in the beginning of this turn, then you can play it again, and then you get to trigger all your landfall creatures. 
Now, one of the things I'm most excited to do in this set is bounce my modal DFCs. Those are the flip cards that have a land on one side and a creature or spell or some kind of effect on the other. I'm very excited to play those in the early game, bounce them with my late game things like uh, this and some of the other red and green cards. And then I have this whole new decision tree where I get to decide, do I replay it as a land to trigger landfall? Or do I want to use the other side of the flip card? For sure. When I first saw the, the set starting to get spoiled, I was seeing some of those interactions like, oh, this bounces a spell or this rather this bounces a land. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. Maybe I'll get to bounce a couple of modal DFCs down the line. It's it's like a real thing. They printed a lot of cards with that effect on it. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited for Balaged Recovery. That's the uh, green uncommon one. It's a land that's also a regrowth. That's mm -hmm. sick. I'm super excited. And it's the perfect kind of late game card. There's some, uh, I think one of the white ones is a tap land on one side and like a two mana one three that you gain two on the other side. That's not what I'm signing up for. But getting to regrowth a card that maybe like a bomb that already got killed or a card with a real effect, that's my kind of magic. Yeah. So I guess the question is here, are you taking the Helion over Bubble Snare at this point? I don't think so. <laughs> While uh, I might be desperately wanting to, new format, I got to be smart, taking the removal spell. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think I'm on board with that. Speaking of removal spells, we're on to our last common, Practiced Tactics, which is just one white mana for an instant at common. It says, choose target attacking or blocking creature. Practiced Tactics deals damage to that creature equal to twice the number of creatures in your party. So this is an interesting card. On its own, it does literal zero. You need at least one creature for this card to do anything. Uh, well, if you start with, say, a cat on turn two and... I don't know, a beast on turn three. This looks pretty bad in your hand. So I think this will probably have a home in the very dedicated party decks, probably especially in blue-white. But besides that, I'm not super impressed. I would definitely want like 90% of my creatures to be party members, and I'd want a good spread across those. Yeah, it does seem like there are a lot of creatures in this format that, that fit into one of those four classes or subtypes. The problem is this falls into that category that I was talking about before with Kabira Outrider, where if you practice tactics expecting to hit for, I don't know, say four, maybe you have two party members and you expect this to hit for four and kill their creature and you're trading one for one with like a creature you blocked or something, and they just have a removal spell in response, they're going to kill your thing and then you're going to be, you're just going to have wasted your practice tactics. Yeah, this is certainly playable. Uh, I'm not going to say it's Path to Exile or anything, but uh, one mana white instant speed removal, I mean, white decks will sometimes have to take what they can get. And this does kill creatures. Of course, being limited to attacking and blocking is the usual thing that we're used to for white. Yeah, I don't really see that as much of a drawback in limited, though. Mm -hmm. Almost everything's getting into the red zone. All right, that brings us on to the uncommons. The first one we have is Skyclave Pickaxe. This is one green mana for an equipment at uncommon. When Skyclave Pickaxe enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. It has landfall, which says whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, equipped creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn, and then it has an equip cost of two and a green. I really like that these these new equipments have this attach it to target creature you control clause when they ETB. Makes a lot of yeah. otherwise unplayable equipments very playable. Oh yeah, take that away and this is not making it into my deck ever. So I, I really think they should have keyworded it though. I think something like quick draw or like... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. They could have they done something cute with it because every single equipment, or at least most of them in the set, have this. Now, I actually think this is pretty solid. If this is one of the green and you're a dedicated landfall deck, 
This can pretty reliably be one mana for a 2-2 equipment that just kind of stays around. If you're triggering landfall every turn or you have ways to bounce lands to your hand like we just discussed, this can definitely turn a, uh, a small creature into a pretty sizable threat, especially when you maybe start playing multiple lands a turn. Yeah, I mean, you do have to play the land for this to do actually anything at all. So it's probably one of my least favorite of these new equipment cards, but doesn't do nothing. And in the, say, red-green landfall deck, you're going to want them. Yeah, exactly. I-, I could see a situation where you and your opponent are kind of in the, a late-game resource war, and you're both top-decking, like killing your opponent's creature, then they top-deck, then you kill it, then vice versa. If this thing sticks around, this turns your lands into decent draws because then any of your small creatures that you top deck become slightly bigger and slightly more aggressive and threatening. Absolutely. However, uh, I'm personally more excited to see what Saffron Isle can come up with this in a uh, in modern for some kind of step links hellhound turn three landfall combo kill. Yeah, sounds fun. Our next uncommon is Vine Gecko. This is one in a green for a two two elemental wiz- lizard at uncommon. The first kick spell you cast each turn costs one less to cast, and whenever you cast a kicked spell, put a plus one plus one counter on Vine Gecko. Hmm, I can't quite figure out where this one's supposed to go. They really weren't clear with this design. No, I mean, plus one plus one counters and like kicking spell, like, can you even do any of those things in this format? No, I don't think you can do either, actually. Yeah, this is very clearly a plant for the blue-green kicker deck, and honestly... Maybe the black-green deck will have a, a kicker spell here or there that they'll want this just for the 1-1 counter synergy. This is a solid bear, and then it's just got a lot of upside. If you have even a few kicked spells, this will probably make it into your deck. Yeah, I don't think you need very much to turn this on. You put you play this on 2, it's a bear that makes all your kick stuff cheaper, and then you also get added benefits for casting all your kick stuff. Like I just think this is a really good card. I mean, I'd, I'd be fine first picking this. I think it, it kind of pushes you towards the kicker decks, but really you only need one or two kicker cards in your deck for this to be like exceptional. Yeah, I probably would take this over Bubble Snare. Uh, in a new format, I think it's good to explore the archetypes and, and try to push them and see what they can do. And I could definitely foresee some broken starts where you cast this, you into the royal, their their creature, and then you just beat them down from there. And typically two drops are pretty important, and this is a super solid one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely one of the uh, the, the sought-after two-drops in, in at least one or two archetypes. Yeah, speaking of very solid two-drops, our next uncommon is Thundering Rebuke. One in a red for a sorcery at uncommon. Thundering Rebuke deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker. Ouch. Yeah, oh well, uh, I guess this is the pick, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this <laughs> is just premium it. removal. Yeah, th- this raid is great. Two mana, deal four. Occasionally, you'll get to kill, kill a Planeswalker that was giving you trouble. It's sorcery speed, but two mana for four damage. Yeah, that, that's going to do it for me. This is my pick out of the set or out of the pack so far. Yeah, me too. Our rare, however, is Crag Crown Pathway. So this is one of the modal DFCs. This is the rare cycle of them where they're a land on both sides, but they don't enter the battlefield tapped, and either side taps for a different color. So this is the red-green pathway land. Pathland, I guess, is what they're calling them. What do you think? Is this is this above Thundering Rebuke? Is this something you should be first picking? I don't think this is any better than any of these cards. I'd probably take it. I'd probably take Bubble Snare, Vine Gecko, and Thundering Rebuke over this. I'm not sure you want to be taking these flip lands unless you're specifically in those colors. Uh, think of them kind of as fast lands. Definitely solid, but mm, I don't know if I want them this early, especially because they are a two color card, really. When you say you're not sure about taking these these flip lands, you're specifically talking about the rare cycle, right? 
Oh yeah, sorry. I'm specifically talking about the ones that are lands on both sides. A lot of the uh, the rare ones where it's a land on one side and a spell on the other are some of the most powerful cards in the set. Don't even get me started on the mythic ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the dual lands, these pathways, are very intriguing. I'm curious to see where they actually fall in the limited format. There isn't very much fixing in this format, and the fixing that, that we do get is kind of abysmal. So maybe you are going to want these higher, but I, I think I'm still on Thundering Rebuke here. Yeah, Thundering Rebuke is my pick too. Th this looks like it's going to be a pretty two-color format, uh, as we also saw in Maro's article, which we'll get to in a little bit. They're pretty well-designed around the two-color pairs. If you do end up splashing with one of these, it is a pretty sick way to splash, though. For sure. Yeah, so that brings us into our next segment, Teferi Tibble. I guess I'll go first. My Teferi is... Dude, we have a freaking sponsor. <laughs> it's so sweet dude like, like who thought, we're, we're kind of doing it yeah this is uh, about the dream situation for us like I, I remember when zach called me up and was like hey dude we should do a podcast and i was like yeah sure this will be fun <laughs> and now uh now we're going places so uh, again thank you to everyone that takes the time out of their week to listen we, we genuinely love it absolutely can't say thank you enough along with that and part of that we have a new look which is super cool and we redid our intro and outro music which i absolutely love super happy with the way all of these new sort of rebranding tools have have turned out so that's kind of been the highlight of my week we've like i said in sort of our intro we've been trying to put this together for about the last month maybe a little bit more and it's been pretty difficult to keep it quiet while we worked out all the details <laughs> yeah and don't sell yourself short you made the intro music Okay, that, yeah, that's fair. Um, so that brings me to the Tibble. Honestly, so for those of you who are interested in the professional scene, um, the Mythic Invitational was this past week, and the coverage was pretty awful. Like, I was really surprised at how, just how bad it was. Audio was c cutting out constantly. They had to postpone the, the, the top eight live broadcast because of yeah, issues. Yeah, that was and I, weird. I get it. Issues happen. Like, I, I cut them slack. I feel bad for the team because the internet completely, like crapped on them the whole day but i don't see how a top level event like this with months to prepare could go so poorly in so many ways it's just kind of sad yeah um but the games were pretty awesome i think the historic format right now is in a really cool place a lot of really cool decks and the commentary was also very good um there were a bunch of matches i caught with like marshall sutcliffe and uh, cedric phillips in and they are just great in the booth but it was really frustrating to watch yeah, I don't think anyone would claim that professional high-level magic is in a perfect place right now. <laughs> what? No. Yeah, oh well. By the way, if, if anyone's new to the podcast, we might have people coming in from different things. This is our Teferi and Tibble. You might have heard of Roses and Thorns. We just talk about a high and a low from the week. My Tibble, my low for the week, was uh, I played in the Invitational Qualifier over the weekend. I started off with six wins, and then I suffered three heartbreaking losses. Ugh, it, it sucked. I've been practicing Historic for so long in anticipation of this weekend just because I was like, hey, this is the first time I've, uh, I've made it from this. I've been waiting all summer ever since I've been hitting Mythic monthly and, and that kind of thing. And <laughs> I had to win just one game out of my next three. It, it was against decks I was favored. I was favored against Goblins and Sultai Ramp and then uh, Red Green, uh, just kind of a, a rogue mid-range deck. And all three in testing, I was heavily favored against. Goblins, I'm like 90% against. Sultai, 70%. Red, green, I only had a few matchups, but they went well. It really hurt, man. It hurt not making it to day two. But I guess I got to come back to, to do it next month. Yeah, honestly, your timing was perfect because they just instituted the new rule that if you, if you hit 6-3 on day one, you auto-qualify for day one of the next month. Um, but that, that just went into effect this month, so... 
you hit the right timing to to six three. It is really sad. He Ben was texting me the entire time, like between matches. He's like, "Here's my record. Here's my record." Oh, I I lost this game one, but came back, and I was on the edge of my seat the entire time, just waiting for him to hit that seventh win. And yeah, it's sad that you weren't able to uh, make it, but uh, there's always next month. Yeah, but here's the thing: even those against decks I was favored with, I don't think I made any mistakes. I, I made one error. Uh, this is my Teferi for the week. What I did, like. I played almost perfectly. I was very happy with my gameplay. And those were three losses that were going to happen. It wasn't on me. And I think that's kind of a, a nice headspace to be in. I haven't been kicking myself about it that often. It's just kind of a thing that happened. And well, it is a feels bad, for sure. <laughs> it's just how the games worked out. I had three very good opponents in those last games, and they, they earned those wins. Uh, I, I made a, one error in a game that I, I won anyway. But, you know, I get to try again next month. My deck is nuts. Uh, I've been posting about it on Twitter. Mono Green Stompy and Historic is super underrated right now. I have a, a about a 69% win rate across 23 hours of best of three leagues. And uh, the, the, the best part of my weekend was uh, an hour later, I went kayaking with some of my friends. And I just took a break from the screens and the thoughts of magic. And it was a, it was a nice time. That's awesome. Really glad you were able to uh, get out and uh, do some something in nature for a bit after all that testing. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Speaking right. of nature. <laughs> yeah, good good segue, I guess. Let's cover a quick breakdown of the mechanics for Zendikar Rising before we jump into all of the archetypes that you should expect to see in this format. We did talk about the mechanics in our M21 format farewell episode, but it wouldn't be a proper format breakdown if we didn't bring them out again to talk about here. Ben, why don't you quickly walk us through the mechanics we're expecting to see in Zendikar Rising? Well, first of all, it's Zendikar. You know there's going to be landfall. When a land enters the battlefield, something happens. This is a, a triggered ability on you know some kind of permanent that's on the field. And uh, you'll see things that interact with this. Stuff that bounce lands to your hand or destroy a land and let you search for another one. Things like that. Next up, we already kind of talked about Kicker. Uh, you can cast a spell for its cost or you can kick a spell, pay a little extra to get an additional effect. Next up, we have Modal Double-Faced Cards or the shorthand is Modal DFCs. These are lands on one side and then something else on the other. Lands, for the case of our rare cycle, uh, or spells. Some are instants, some are sorceries, some are creatures. And you can choose which one you're going to cast or play as you do it. There's a lot of weird rules, and I'd be lying if I said I knew all of them. For example, I think some effects allow you to play from the graveyard, but some don't. I'm not entirely sure about all that, but uh, I trust the arena client to teach me. Yeah, so the important thing with these is that they are their front face each of, each of these modal DFCs has a front face and a back face. Typically, the land is the back face of them, uh, you know, ignoring that rare cycle. So when they're in your hand, in your deck, in your graveyard, they count as that front face as opposed to the back face, regardless of how you played it. If you played it as a land and that land gets destroyed, well, when it gets to the, when it gets to the graveyard, it's whatever the front face of that card was. Mm -hmm. I think it might be, I'm not it might be like Crucible of World Effects that let you play them as lands from your graveyard, even if it's the back face. I know there was some Twitter discussion about some of the weird corner cases, but yeah, we'll figure that out later. Yeah, I don't think That's we're going to run into any of those in Limited. <laughs> hey, there is that green mythic that lets you play lands in the graveyard. That's it true. It could happen. Last but not least is Party. This is the D&D flavor inspired uh, set mechanic. You've got a cleric, a wizard, a warrior, and a rogue, you know, classic adventuring party. Uh, you'll get a payoff. And a lot of these cards have bonuses that uh, count how many members of your party are there. If your party's only half full, well, then you'll get a small effect. But when you get a full one, you'll get some good bonuses. Now, notably, creatures can only count as up to one of these. 
So if you have a creature that is both a cleric and a wizard, sorry, it's going to have to pick a profession and, and use only one to contribute to the party mechanic. Yeah, and so part of that article that Ben briefly mentioned a bit earlier from Mark Rosewater discusses how you're supposed to expect to see these cleric, wizard, warrior, rogue subtypes. So we'll, we'll quickly run through the primary and secondaries for each color. Each color has primary, secondary, tertiary, and a single uh, of these classes that it, you can't find in that color. We're going to run through the primary and secondaries. You should be able to piece together the other ones from that information. So in white, your primary is cleric and your secondary is warrior. In blue, your primary is wizard and your secondary is rogue. In black, your primary is rogue and your secondary is cleric. In red, your primary is warrior and your secondary is wizard. And in green, all four of them are tertiary. So you can find all four class types in green and notably blue white and red black are going to be kind of your, your big party colors because you can get all four between those those two color pairs yeah i gotta say this is beautiful set design the idea of having green be kind of a, a standout color on zendikar which is such a green inspired plane and then the other ones all kind of doing this unique thing with black red and blue white doing the same thing how often do we see that it's, it's pretty cool yeah, and it's also really, really interesting the way they designed those color pairs, because as we're going to get to in a bit, you'll notice they might all care about party, blue, white, and red, black, that is. They might both care about party, but they do so in different ways, and, and we'll get to that when we get to those archetypes. Well, without further ado, let's get started on our archetype breakdown. So we're going to go through, we're going to talk about what we call the signpost uncommon. This is the uncommon that falls in the two color pair, and we'll just talk about what kind of clues it gives us towards what this deck in Limited will be trying to do. We'll talk about five of each of the color of that pair's top commons, and then uh, maybe afterwards we'll share some final thoughts about the format. So we're going to start off with, oh man, I've been waiting a long time to say this, white, red, aggro equipment. The overall yeah. theme of this is going to be warriors and equipment, and uh, you know how much I love equipment and bad red-white cards. Absolutely, yeah, you've been talking about that for the last few episodes. Basically since we talked about our, our draft chaff cube, You've been uh, spouting your white-red equipment nonsense. Look, every once in a while, I like to take a break from my, my mid-rangey green nonsense decks or my controlling uh, garbage, and I like to just play a two-mana 2-2 two -two and then give it a really big sword and just attack through everything. And uh, sometimes my favorite form of card advantage is just dead cards in my opponent's hand after I kill them with my dorky little guy with a sword, you know? It, it's a simple life. The signpost uncommon for this is Kargan Warleader. This is one red-white for a human warrior. It's a 3-3. Three, three. Pretty simple. Other warriors you control get plus one, plus one. So red-white, unsurprisingly, it's going to care about having warriors. Now, this is pretty interesting. Didn't we just talk about how decks are going to care about having, you know, different creature types? So now this one is caring about one creature type to, to a larger extent. This is pretty cool. Yeah, in my opinion, it's sort of one of the weaknesses of this format from a design perspective. There are a couple of cards like this that care about a specific subtribe. It does help you if you find yourself seeing more of these and you wanted to build, say, a party deck of some kind, but then you're catching all these warriors and you're able to pick up all these warriors. Well, now you can kind of build this warrior deck, right? But overall, red-white doesn't care too much about party specifically. It really just cares about getting warriors if you care about any creature type at all. Yeah, it's fascinating in that... Each of the four creature types has its, you know, home color pair. We'll talk about the rest in a little bit. So then there's this kind of tension. If I'm in red-white and I'm picking up all the warriors, 
well, does that mean anyone is going to get a good party deck at my, in my pod if I snap up every warrior I see? Or am I going to be trying to take some of the, the bomb party payoffs in red-white and maybe not focus so hard on warriors? I, I think there's going to end up being multiple different builds of multiple different decks. For example, I could see a red-white deck that, you know, the warriors is clear sub-theme, but I could see red-white with a bunch of good party payoffs and enablers. Yeah, I don't think that's far-stretched, and uh, I could definitely see something like that come to fruition. All right, so let's start with some of the top commons and uncommons for red-white. So we've got Core Blademaster, one of the white for a 1-1 core warrior. There's double strike, and equipped warriors you control have double strike. This is, uh, you know, perfectly at home here in red-white where there'll be an abundance of both. We have Paired Tactician. This is two and a white for a 3-2 human warrior. Whenever Paired Tactician and at least one other warrior attack, put a 1-1 counter on Paired Tactician. Uh, this is uh, pretty similar to a card that we've seen before, a Makeshift Battalion. Whereas that one had to attack with enough creatures to get the old battalion mechanic. <laughs> this one only requires one other creature to attack with it, but it has to be a warrior. If you've got enough of them, for example, a two drop, I think this could be pretty good. You'll definitely want to curve your first warrior into this, though, so that this can attack and get the counter right away. Next up, we have Resolute Strike. This is one white for an instant. Target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. If it's a warrior, you may attach an equipment you control to it. This is a pretty powerful combat trick. One white for plus two plus two is a serviceable rate that we've seen before in other formats and is uh, pretty capable of some strong blowouts. And attaching a equipment, some of which have pretty high upside to it at instant speed, this is my kind of nonsense. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't be taking this highly. I think I have it rated at like C minus-ish, C-ish. But it's an efficient combat trick, like Ben said, and getting to attach an equipment to a creature for free is definitely worth it. Now you might be wondering, what am I going to equip? How about Relic Axe? This is a two-mana equipment. When it enters the battlefield, attach it to a creature you control. An equipped creature gets plus one, plus one. If it's a warrior, it gets plus two, plus one instead with equipped two. This just seems like a fine little equipment. It's colorless, so you can stick it in any deck you want, but I think it'll be especially at home here because it cares about warriors, that extra bit of power. And uh, last but not least in white, I honestly couldn't wait to talk about this card that much longer. I have a feeling it's going to be a controversial one. Farsight Adept. This is two and a white for a 3-3 core wizard. When it enters the battlefield, you and target opponent each draw a card. Ooh, all mm. right, let's dig into this, because in my opinion, a three-mana 3-3 three, three that nets your opponent a card isn't awesome. Yes, but it's also getting you a card. Yeah, yeah. But, but you're actually putting your opponent up a card because you have to play this. So it puts you at parity while putting your opponent up a card. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. It, it, sometimes we've seen the, this kind of similar symmetrical effect, but it'll have something to do with like gaining life or each player gets a token or scries or something like that. But it's also a three mana three three with a relevant creature type in white. I mean, it's I, relevant for party, but like white red cares about warriors. I have a feeling you'll be taking some of the party payoffs here and there, though. And I think if this is a decently sized body, is this a drawback or an upside? If you're beating down and, you know, like I said, I like killing my opponents when they still have a bunch of cards in hand. If this helps me find my equipment that I need to attach or uh, one more kill spell to get a creature out of the way, I don't care if my opponent drew that one more card. If this is a great body or a great rate and I'm just attacking every turn, do I really care? What's the difference between my opponent dying with four cards in hand and dying with five cards in hand, right? 
I, I do agree that if your plan is to beat down and you're hoping to kill your opponent before they get to spend, like, cast that drawn card, then yeah, it doesn't matter. However, I have an inkling that this format is going to be quite a bit slower than, say, M21 or Amonkhet Remastered, and I don't think you're actually going to be able to beat your opponents down before they get to cast those extra cards. Hmm, interesting. I think that'll be the test to see how this one falls. In red, we have Fireblade Charger. This is a 1-mana one 1-1 one Goblin Warrior. As long as it's equipped, it has haste. And when it dies, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. This is a kill spell with enough equipment in your deck, and every once in a while you'll be able to pin down an X1. Sometimes you'll just be able to finish your opponent off for a little bit of extra damage. And conveniently, this works decently well as a top deck in the late game. Your board is empty, your opponent's board is empty, you have a relic axe left on the battlefield. Top deck this, guess what? It is coming at them immediately as a three-power attacker, and if they happen to chump or kill it, it's able to deal three to a creature or them. I like this little guy. There is some setup, right? At its worst, it's a one-mana one-one, but it does have a relevant creature type. It bu- like bolsters all your warriors, and it is probably gonna like on average lightning bolt your opponent when it dies, or or like one of their. Yeah, I think it's just good. I'm imagining the dream scenario where you stick like three equipment on this and just oh jeez, yeah, because the problem is they want to block it, but then when they do, they just lose their best creature. So. Uh, maybe two creatures they kind of two for ones on its own Mm -hmm. i i think this is going to be a strong part of this archetype next up we have gomafada vanguard this is one in red for a 2-2 human warrior when it attacks target creature and opponent controls with power less than or equal to the number of warriors you control can't block this turn so uh first of all it's a warrior you can stop a one power creature from attacking or sorry from blocking as you attack into it if you curve out with a bunch of warriors well then guess what you can probably stop their most relevant creature from blocking I think that this is going to be, again, a pretty good part of the Warriors deck. I'm just imagining going Fireblade Charger into Gomavada Vanguard, into Paired Tactician, into a Relic Axe. That seems like a very strong start. If your opponent is playing uh, any kind of like 1-3s or 2-3s, or, or they're going to get run over pretty quickly. Next up, this isn't actually a Warrior, but I have a feeling this deck is going to want it. This is Grotag Nightrunner. This is a 2 and a red for a 2-3 Goblin Rogue. When it deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. Well, the reason that I liked the uh, the Farsight Adept so much is that it gives card advantage in red-white, which is a pretty rare thing to see for an aggro deck like this. However, if this thing is able to get through, you exile the top card and get the pseudo-red card advantage that we've seen in a few other places before. It is a 3-mana 2-3, so how are you going to get it in? How are you going to make sure it deals damage? Well, what about if you attach a big equipment onto it and make blocks unfavorable for your opponent? If they're forced to chump this, you're getting card advantage. If it gets through, you're getting card advantage. Sounds good to me. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. When I first saw this card, I was thinking, like, you're not getting through with this very often. But I guess if you're trading... I mean, it's it's like a one-for-one. I don't know if I'd call that card advantage necessarily. But if you're forcing them to block this uh, so you can't get card advantage, you know, that might that might be helping you out. Mm-hmm. I also think that red-white is going to have ways to, you know, mess with combat prevent stuff from attacking, use some, or from blocking. I keep saying that. I just really want to attack. It'll uh, prevent your opponents from blocking, or you'll have cheap combat tricks like Resolute Strike. Next up is Scavenge Blade. This is one in a red for an equipment. It has the usual equipment thing when it ATBs, attach it to a creature you control. The equipped creature gets 2-0, and it has equipped 2 in a red. Another one of these colored uh, equipment. Obviously, this is meant for the Warriors deck, and giving 2-0 for one in a red isn't a great rate. But I think that if you have enough warriors and enough of the payoffs, this could be playable. I'm not going out of my way to take this early, though. 
And last but not least, we have Expedition Champion. This is two in a red for a 2-3 human warrior. Expedition Champion gets 2-0 as long as you control another warrior. Come on, I think in pretty much any red deck, this is going to be a 3-mana 4-3, which is a pretty solid deal. Yeah, I think 3-mana 2-3 is something you're not excited about, but yeah, you just need any other warrior and this card kind of comes online. Again, still not fantastic, but 3-mana 4-3 is good. Mm, I'm definitely looking at ways to get these creatures, get their power high, and give it some way to to get through to the opponent. Something like First Strike or a... Maybe Core Blade Master to give them equipment and then give them double strike. Well, that brings us to our next archetype. Here we have blue red spells and wizards matter. The overall mm. theme of this archetype is to cast wizards and instants and sorceries. That's pretty much it. Typical for your your usual blue red archetype. Um, they they often want instants and sorceries. Now they also care about wizards. So our signpost in common here is Umara Mystic is one blue red for a one three Merfolk wizard at uncommon. It has flying, and whenever you cast an instant, a sorcery, or wizard spell, Umara get, Mystic gets plus two, plus zero until end of turn. So this is kind of interesting because typically these decks care about having a maximum of instants and sorceries, and then some big-ish payoff for having those, like Crackling Drake or something of that nature. This also cares about wizard spells, so you can kind of fudge the numbers of your typical blue-red deck and have a higher creature count if all those creatures are wizards because you're still buffing your team sorry we dragonauts isn't this just a strictly better one because yeah. it triggers off wizards too yeah, yeah obviously blue red is the wizard color pair just like last was the warrior color pair blue red spells this is usually a pretty solid archetype let's get into it for top blue commons and uncommons for this archetype we have cunning geyser mage this is two and a blue for a three two human wizard at common it has kicker for two and a blue when Cunning Geyser Mage enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, return up to one other target creature to its owner's hand. So this is kind of a jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's a bounce, this looks nothing like a jellyfish. It's the it's a wizard riding a lizard. Uh, I don't know if I'd say this is a mana war or anything, but I mean it kind of gets there. It it serves a similar purpose. It's kind of expensive. You know, six mana for a three-two that bounces one thing is kind of meh. I don't know. I think it's fine. And it's a, it's a slightly worse rate than we usually see, but yeah, I'm sure yeah. it's fine. Next up, we have Deliberate. This is one and a blue for an instant in common that says scry two, then draw a card. These sorts of cantrips are pretty typical for the blue-red deck. You tend to see opt in this place, anticipate occasionally. Anything that lets you get more cards while also putting an instant on the stack is, is going to do it for you. And this lets you scry before doing that. I think this is a pretty solid card. Yeah, so uh, I guess Serum Visions was a little bit too good at, at one mana. So they just added a little extra mana and flipped the order. Next up is Dwari Disruption. This is one and a blue for an instant at uncommon. It says counter target spell unless its controller pays one. Now, this typically wouldn't be a very great card. I don't, I don't think I'd include this in most lists, but this is a modal DFC. So it's also a land that enters battlefield tapped and taps for blue on the backside. I think that bumps this up quite a bit. It's an instant when you need it to be. It's a land when you need it to be, and it can counter your opponent's spells when you time it right. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I've been trying to focus on the tap land modal DFCs because primarily I think you're going to want to play the tap lands early in the game, right? Like turns one and two when you're not trying to efficiently use your curve that well. Like playing a tap land on turn one usually won't negatively impact you. However, this is one that you also kind of want for the early game. So what are you going to do? Like leave this up on turn two and then play it tapped turn three. And then you're stuck playing a two drop on turn three and then you're trying to do the same thing on turn four. I don't know. This one has some tension to it where you want to play it early, but also use it early. Whereas uh, our, our next card is going to be kind of the opposite of that. 
Yeah, I think the trick here, though, is that there are a lot of cards in this archetype that get instant sorceries back from your graveyard. So you could cast this on two, counter your opponent's spell, and then take it back from your graveyard and play it as a land later when you need it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So next up, we have Silundi Vision. This is two and a blue for an instant and uncommon. It says, look at the top six cards of your library. You may reveal an instant or sorcery card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in, in a random order. Uh, this is a weird way to spell Collected Company. <laughs> it's not a co- I mean, if, if you okay. call this a Collected Company, it's, it, it's a little different really. than that. It's not really, but it's one of the closest effects that instants and sorceries get. Um, this is also notably a modal DFC, so it is going to be land when you need it to be as well adds to your instant count, and will feed your hand with more instants and sorcery. So I think this is a pretty solid card for this archetype. Mm, it, it digs deep, I will say. Six cards is a lot. If you have a kill spell you need to find, this will probably get you there. Especially in limited. I mean, by the time you're casting this on three, you're probably going through more than a quarter of your deck. Yeah. Maybe not quite that much, but... Uh, next up is Umara Wizard. We have a four and a blue Merfolk Wizard at Uncommon. This is four. This is a 4-3. And whenever you cast an instant sorcery or wizard spell, Umara Wizard gains flying until end of turn. This is also a modal DFC, so it's a land on the back face as well. This card is gas. This is what I'm talking about. You keep this in your opening hand and, like, say, one other land. You just play it on turn one as a tap land. Or, let's say you top deck this later on turn five. It's a, it's a flying, powerful threat. Your deck is probably full of other wizards and instants and sorceries. A five mana four three isn't great, but if you can reliably give this flying... And the fact that it's a modal DFC, I think this is going to be one of the stronger cards in blue. Yeah, especially when you can take this as like a land slot in your deck, you know, play 16 lands plus this. I, yeah, I think you're kind of doing it. I'm still not even entirely sure how to build limited decks with with this new modal DFC. I, I'm looking forward to seeing just some po- potential builds. Uh, I, I'm still toying around with the idea of whether to go up on lands or, or down. Like, is this a, a creature that helps prevent screw or prevent flood uh, it, it, it's very interesting uh, did you happen to see that control list going around where it's uh going to be playable in the new standard it doesn't have one basic land Ooh, sounds like my kind of deck doesn't have a, a single not even basic it doesn't have a single non-creature land or non-spell land every single thing is either a, a modal dfc or something else it, i love that it, it's going to be an interesting one uh, yeah i think for limited the puzzle is going to be essentially are you okay is the card on its front face powerful enough to play as a card in your deck and if it's not you want it to take up a land slot i think that's the way i'm approaching this going into it but we'll see how it shakes out Mm -hmm. so cracking into red here we have royal eruption this is one and a red for a sorcery at common kicker five generic royal eruption deals three damage to any target if the spell was kicked it deals five damage instead that's a good effect say top red common yeah i think so this this card looks gas next it up is, is sorcery oh, speed, but you know yeah it's yeah it's, sorcery, you know it's it, but it, but still like th- this is just like a great rate and limited yeah next up is thundering rebuke it's one in red for a sorcery we open this in our cracker pack this is uh it deals four damage target creature or planeswalker just gonna be super solid you want these good removal spells in this type of deck because they often don't have massive top ends um and in this particular format without a card like uh crackling drake or enigma drake those cards that build the more instant sorceries you spend um you're not going to really have those massive finishers so getting these removal spells down early and uh removing your opponent's big threats and blockers is going to be super important Mm -hmm. what's going on in that art that poor little lizard now that i'm seeing it in a a larger image yeah he got kind of (laughs) wrecked poor little guy 
Next up is Tormenting Voice. This is one in red for a sorcery at common. As an additional cost to cast this spell, discard a card and draw two cards. And yeah, we know what this does. Yep. Next up is Rockslide Sorcerer. This is three in a red for a human wizard at uncommon. It's a 3-3, three, three, and whenever you cast an instant sorcery or wizard spell, Rockslide Sorcerer deals one damage to any target. Hmm. Any target, huh? Yep. Yeah, all right. I can see this on uh, turn four. Then turn five, you untap and play two wizards, kill an opponent's creature. Sweet. Yeah, it's just going to be... It's just extra value for all your cards. Anytime you can get more stuff for the stuff you were planning to play anyway is going to be great. And then if you start, like, say, chaining a tormenting voice into two spells and you just get to go nuts and ping down things in the middle of combat this looks like a pretty strong signal for red if you see this yeah next up is fissure wizard this is one in red for a goblin wizard at common it's a two one and when fissure wizard enters the battlefield you may discard a card if you do draw a card so just kind of another um like rummage effect you can keep keep those cards coming notably we don't have a single mana draw spell like we don't have any any opts or like single mana cantrips in this format so you're really gonna have to lean heavy on these two mana ones mm-hmm. but the archetype seems solid i like it yeah wizards is always a, a pretty solid deck there's always enough instants and sorceries to put some kind of deck together you know yeah i don't think it's going to be one of the strongest archetypes in the format like we we're used to seeing with the last couple of formats but it's definitely uh it's decent it has it has some support yeah the lack of opts definitely powers it down a little bit now uh on to another, uh, one of my favorite archetypes, Red-Green Landfall Beats. So this deck wants to leverage landfall attackers mixed with, you know, big and aggressive creatures, especially ones that can return lands to your hand and do all sorts of nonsense with lands. But this one's a bit more on the aggressive side. We're going to see some big landfall effects. So our signpost uncommon is Brushfire Elemental. Oh man, this flavor is so sweet. I love this thing. Red-Green for a 1-1 Elemental with Haste. It can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less, and it has landfall whenever a land ETBs. Brushfire Elemental gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. Yeah, this is just like a U card all over. I love it. The haste is a little bit weird, and the size of it is a little bit weird. But like, I don't know, if my opponent is on the play and they play a 2-2 and I play this, I can't attack with it on turn two, even though it has haste. Right? If they play like a bear or something, it's not getting in. Well, it can't be blocked. Oh, that's true. So I guess it will get in, unless my opponent has a slightly larger thing. Eh, all right, I guess they did think about this one. Uh, in that case, then it's going to start slamming for three on the on the future turns. This is a pretty cool card. Yeah, I like it. So let's see the, some of the things you're, you're going to find in a deck with it. Up first is Pyroclastic Hellion. We talked about this one in our Crack Draft type thing. It bounces land to your hand, helps you trigger landfall again in the late game, and it's a sizable body. Up next, I think one of the uh, more scary landfall creatures is Skyclave Geopede. This is two and a red for a 3-1 trample insect. It has landfall. Whenever a land ETBs, it gets plus two and plus two until end of term. You like a uh, three mana 5-3 trample? Yeah, this is going to be a powerful card. You're definitely going to want to try to get as many lands out as possible in a given turn with this one. Yeah, I don't see how your opponent just doesn't put their first three power creature in front of this. As long as you have a good mix of lands and spells which cough cough that's kind of what the modal dfcs are designed to do this thing will trigger consistently for a lot of the turns uh, after you play it and you know smacking for five power over multiple turns that'll win you games yep next up we have its smaller cousin akum hellcount oh this is a this is a bad dog look at this thing it's one red for a zero one elemental dog again landfall gets plus two plus two one mana zero one but uh, whenever you play a land, it becomes a one mana two three. Your opponents will not often be able to block it if you play this on turn one. 
And it'll probably be able to attack unchallenged for several turns after that. Back that up with pump spells and, well, maybe it is a good dog after all. Next up, we have Akum Warrior. This is 5 in red for a 4-5. It is Trample and it is a Minotaur Warrior. Now, a 6 mana 4-5 isn't great, I know. But guess what? It's a modal DFC. On its other side, this is a tapped land. So here's how I envision this going. I like this one in red-green a lot because it's a late drop and a solid body attached. I imagine that you play this tapped on turn one, and then you start curving out on turn two, turn three, you play a GP, turn four, blah, blah, blah. Then you play a Pyroclastic Hellion, bounce a Coom Warrior, the land version of it, back to your hand, and then next turn, I don't know, you just got a, a big threat. You're ready to cast. I think the ability to turn a land into a spell in the late game that's pretty incredible for a, a mid-rangey aggro deck like this. Yeah, it's true. You're going to want to be careful with that line of play that Ben just outlined because uh, the Pyroclastic Helion sets you back a turn as far as mana goes. So you can't really curve the Helion into this unless you have like a rock or something or mm -hmm. you've been able to play multiple lands in a given turn. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a threat. It does trample over and, you know, it'll probably close out games. Yeah. Now, next up, we have a kind of similar effect, something that I envision doing the same type of play with, where you play it as a tap land early and then use its effect later. We have Song Mad Treachery. This is three red red for a threatened effect. Gain control of target creature and until end of turn. Untap it and it gets haste. No, I mean, I can imagine your opponent looking pretty nervous to play out a big creature if they see the modal DFC land of this on the other side of the battlefield and they know that you might have a way of returning a land to your hand. So you can set up a pretty big swing with this if you're able to get that back to your hand somehow. I think yeah. this is a more expensive effect than it, it should be, but I think that's kind of a hint from Wizards saying, hey, this is a pretty powerful effect stapled to a land. Yeah, it could be. I think we see that 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 uptick in rate uh, on most of these cards, um, just to account for the fact that they are also lands. That flexibility is massive, especially limited. And typically you want these types of effects in decks like black red decks that are able to sacrifice things but yeah i think this could work here as a finisher not something i'm looking to like jam in this deck but yeah it gets it can get the job done yeah uh, i guess they printed them all a little overpriced so that they wouldn't be broken thank goodness that they didn't print any broken dfcs right yeah <laughs> yeah cough cough mythic cycle anyway next up we've got call me ambush this is two and a green for an instant Target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. It's an instant, and uh, guess what? It's a modal DFC. So three mana for a fight is, again, a bit more expensive, but I don't know. If you're able to return this to your hand in the late game, it's just so powerful. Being able to use your lands for value, getting a spell off the battlefield and back into your hand, it puts you back a little bit of tempo, I guess. If returning a land to your hand, it could be considered tempo. But, I mean, it's kind of just like drawing a kill spell. When your Pyroclastic Hellions downside or kind of upside turns into a definite upside as you bounce a kill spell to your hand that's that's such a big swing next up we have canopy bayloth this is three and a green for a four three beast landfall when a land enters the battlefield it gets plus two and plus two until end of turn now this is a pretty aggressively statted four drop attacking as a six five that is a lot of power and a little less toughness this gives me a little bit of concern that the top end is going to be aggressive I don't know. I feel like slamming this against a more aggressive deck. The question is, will the aggressive deck be able to end you before you can end them with a big finisher like this? Or maybe our next card, Kazandu Stomper. This is five and a green for a 6-5 beast. It has Trample, and when Kazandu Stomper enters the battlefield, return up to two lands you control to their owner's hands. Colossal yeah, so Zedmaw, eat your heart out. 
I have a new best friend now. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. You you were you mentioned there about the canopy Bailoth, the um the way that these sort of more expensive cards seem to be aggressively slanted, and it's interesting because when we look back at most of well maybe not most but a couple of those cards we looked at in red, the Helion, the Elemental Dog, um, the Akum Warrior, they're all like defensively statted. So it's like these cheaper cards, I guess healing doesn't count as cheaper, but some of these cheaper cards are, you know, defensively statted, and then some of your more expensive ones are kind of aggressively statted. It seems like this kind of is playing a more mid-rangey style than we're used to seeing red-green play. Yeah, and uh, this thing does kind of, it's tough to block these big fat beaters. Like a 6-5, your opponent tries to double block it, but then they get so blown out by any kind of interaction at all, whether a kill spell or a trick. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious to see how this goes. I, I don't remember the last time we've saw, seen something like this where the smaller creatures have a bit more defensive attributes, maybe besides warriors, and some of the larger ones like this, uh, the, the big green ones, are like six fives. It's pretty interesting. And we see this again in our next card, Territorial Scythe Cat. This is two and a green for a 2-1 trample. Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield, put a 1-1 counter on Territorial Scythe Cat. This I'm is really great. excited about this, this card. Around. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the counter sticks around. Uh, so let's say turn four after you play it, you're going to play another land, hopefully. And then you're immediately able to attack with a 3-2 trample. That's a pretty good deal. And then let's say your opponent has a 2-4 a out. Well, you just hold it back and next turn you play another land. Boom. It's up to a 4-3. And after that, it's a 5-4. And then you have a real threat on your hands for a, a, a nice little common cat. Yeah, especially that it doesn't cost really... like. It's just a three drop. Um, I mean, a three mana two one is, is pretty garbage, but, you know, those counters will stack up. And last but not least, we have Tangled Florahedron. This is one of the green for a 1-1 one, one elemental. Taps to add a green, and it is a modal DFC. I just like this little guy. Look how cute that art is. That's it, beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Look at that little hedron playing with butterflies. Anyway, I think this will be a pretty important card for the decks that are trying to ramp into things like Pyroclastic Hellion and Kazandu Stomper. You don't have to return the lands with it. Ramping into a 6-mana six 6-5 six will, you know, that'll be a good game plan no matter what format it is. Yeah, the Tangle Florhedron actually is nice because it helps offset the downside of bouncing those lands. Say you want to get one of your modal DFCs back, you're still, you still have a way to generate more mana. You, may, you might actually go from being ahead on mana to being on par with mana, and then, you know, you're just playing yourself on curve at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, this modal DFC actually has kind of the opposite effect of some of the ones we talked about earlier. In that this is one that you'd like to play on turn two, but when you top deck it in the late game, you get to decide, do I really want a two mana one one dork right now? Or do I want to trigger my three landfall creatures? Yeah, landfall makes land top decks way better. Zendikar has always been a format about using all of your resources. And it looks like in this one, it's going to be pretty similar. Yeah, so next up is blue-green ramp. This is one of my all-time favorite archetypes. The overall theme here is, well, you're ramping. And uh, it also has... A kicker sub theme um so most of the cards that care about kicker cards and the cards that have kicker on them are in this color pair so our signpost uncommon probably a front runner for my top pet card of this format <laughs> lull mage is familiar this is one green blue for a beast at uncommon it's a two four taps to add green or blue and whenever you cast a kicked spell you gain two life this card is everything i'm about in magic nonsense oh no you're you're right it doesn't draw cards <laughs> well, the kick spells might who knows fair yeah i am super super excited for this it's sort of the ramp archetype we haven't really seen that work too well lately because of all the aggression in in the the most recent formats i was sad about river hoopoo not really being a playable 
in uh, Amon Kett Remastered, but Love Mage is familiar. does a good Hoopoo impression. Yeah, it does, actually. It, it, it's similar. It doesn't draw the card, but interestingly, this is a three-drop dork. I don't know if you'd even call it a dork at that point. It's more of a fatty. I don't know. It's a two-four, but it does tap for mana. So the next turn, you play a land, and presumably you're able to cast something that costs five, including the kicker, which we'll see some things like that. Yeah, so let's let's get right into the top commons and uncommons. In blue, we have Bubble Snare, of course, pretty much the only removal spell in blue. It's, it's a kicker card as well, so you're getting added benefit from all the cards that care about kicker. Uh, again, we have Cunning Geyser Mage here, two and a blue for the 3-2, Human Wizard, kicker, two and a blue, and uh, it bounces target creature. Again, kicker card. Any of the kicker cards that go up in value when you're starting to realize you're in this deck, and any of them that, that have added benefits when they're not kicked as well, or like are just serviceable cards when they're not kicked is, is good as well. Yeah. Roost of Drakes is next. This is blue for an enchantment with kicker, two and a blue. When Roost of Drakes enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, create a 2-2 blue Drake creep. Blue Drake creature token with flying. Whenever you cast a kicked spell, create a 2-2 blue Drake creature token with flying. So, if you cast this on turn one, you get absolutely nothing for it. But then all your other kicker spells do stuff. They, they, they generate drakes. If you uh, cast this for hmm. four, then you get a drake for your trouble, and all your kicker stuff generates more drakes. Drake Haven, what did they do to you? <laughs> okay, so it's oh, not man. quite that, but it's still a good card, and it's probably going to push you into this archetype. So let's say you just play this on turn one. I think you want, you definitely want to have one kicker spell to get full value out of this if it's on turn one. And then if you're playing it as a four drop, I guess you also only really need one to get value out of it. Yeah, I can see this being a solid build around enchantment. Right, that's exactly where I have it. I think it's a build around. You're not playing this in a deck that doesn't have multiple kicker spells in it. And you really want to have a lot of them in, the, in a deck that cares about Roost of Drakes. Mm -hmm. But this thing is going to start churning out two twos. And OK, none of the kicker spells are very cheap like that. That's a given. Most of them are pretty expensive once you've kicked them. However, we'll see down the line and we've already seen in our crack and draft type thing. Vine Gecko makes your kicker spells cheaper. We'll get to that card in just a second. So there are ways to get these to get this Roost of Drakes rolling. And I, I think it's going to be a powerful effect in this deck. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that flooding the board with two two flyers is a pretty strong game plan. They block well, they attack well, and this doesn't seem like it'll take that much effort. I think you want at least six or seven other kicker cards in your deck before this becomes really good. Yeah, I agree. Next up is Risen Riptide. This is two and a blue for an elemental zero five at common. Whenever you cast a kicked spell, Risen Riptide has base power and toughness five, five until end of turn. Yikes. Yeah. This doesn't say wild. defender on it. <laughs> Nope, no, it just gets to, it gets to jam. This is a big old wave that just rolls over your opponent. Huh. So if you have this card, instant speed kicker spells go way up. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of, and this is a card that I didn't include in the show notes here, mostly because I, I wanted to showcase a couple of the other payoffs for the, the, the archetype. But mm. Into the Royal is another card that is massive in this deck and can turn your, riptide, your Risen Riptides online very easily. It's rather cheap. And um, yeah, you're going to be wanting to pick those up as well. Mm. Just a note with Risen Riptide. Wait until after your opponent attacks into it to cast that. If they're brave enough to attack into it uh, and, and block first, then cast your kicker spell. So you definitely get to eat it. Yeah. Next up, we have Merfolk Falconer. This is three blue blue for a four four flying Merfolk wizard at uncommon. And whenever you cast a kicked spell, you scry two. Hmm. Yeah. So this is another instance of one of these creatures that cares about when you cast a kicked spell i mean a four mana f uh, sorry a five mana four four flyer is pretty decent 
like you're gonna you're gonna put that in most decks i would think and yeah. getting added benefit of making sure that your draws are not dead when you cast kicked stuff like that is this is just a solid card yeah i like this i think it'll be uh, another pretty key card in the archetype plus a, a five out of four four flyer that's gonna make a lot of decks no matter what absolutely on to green first up we have our tangled florahedron so this kind of kicks off our, no pun intended, kicks off our <laughs> um, ramp side of things. Blue doesn't tend to have too much ramp in it, but this is blue-green ramp. So Tangled Florahedron's doing that quite well. It's, a you know, the two-mana 1-1 one, one that taps for green. It's also a modal DFC, so definitely making sure you're hitting your land drops or just getting a dork out there to uh, ramp you a bit as well. Next up is Taunting Arbor Mage. That's two and a green for a 2-3 with Kicker 3 generic. When Taunting Arbor Mage enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, all creatures able to block target creature this turn do so. So this is another another uh, kicker spell. It's not very hard to kick in that it doesn't cost extra colored mana, and it turns one of your creatures into a unicorn, so they they have to block that one creature and lets you get in for a nice little alpha strike. Next up is Vastwood Surge. This is three and a green for a sorcery at uncommon. It has kicker four generic. You search your library for up to two basic land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. If this spell was kicked, put two plus one plus one counters on each creature you control. And this is also a good card for any of the landfall decks. You just get to jam out two extra landfall triggers with this. It puts them onto the battlefield. Yeah, that's pretty good. I didn't consider that. Not to mention buffing the creatures with counters. If you have two landfall creatures, they're going to be unstoppable attackers on the turn you cast this. Yeah, notably, this blue-green deck doesn't particularly care about landfall, but there are a lot of green landfall creatures, and you're probably going to have some in, in most of these decks. And... Getting to ramp yourself most mostly is what this card is here for in this archetype is going to be great, and it's going to build you up into some of your, your more expensive cards. Now, one thing I wanted to mention with this archetype is that it seems like there aren't too many very expensive creatures. A lot of these ramp decks in formats past ramp up into some big, you know, six or seven or eight drop. This archetype doesn't really seem to see too many of those. Instead, you're ramping up into your kicker spells. So you're able to ramp out faster, get your get your mana under your feet, and then you can cast your kicker spells way before your opponent might be expecting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems pretty good. So next up, we have Vine Gecko. This is one and a green for a 2-2 Elemental Wizard. Uh, lizard. I keep saying Elemental Wizard <laughs> after that. The L's just get me. Wizard Lizard. Um, so this is an Elemental Lizard at Uncommon. The first kicked spell you cast each turn costs one less to cast, and whenever you cast a kick spell, it gets a 1-1 counter just super awesome card in this archetype and a great two drop as well and lastly we have roiling regrowth this is two and a green for an instant at uncommon you sack a land then you search your library for up to two basic land cards put them onto the battlefield tapped then shuffle your library now again this is another card that's great in the green landfall decks because this is a way to get two landfall triggers at instant speed so you can really get three landfall triggers on your turn you could play your land, attack, your opponent makes some blocks thinking that's that's the worst of it, there, there are no more landfall triggers coming, and then boom, you got two more. Also pretty good for ramping into the kick spells. When I first read this, I thought it was just a, a reprint of Harrow, which blew my mind. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Then I noticed that they come in the battlefield tapped. Womp womp. Yeah, gone are those days, unfortunately. But hey, ramp is rampant. In this archetype, we'll take it where we can get it. So next up, we have White Black. This is kind of a cleric's life gain theme. So overall, it does care about clerics. It's the cleric archetype. It's a pretty strong life gain theme, and it has some minor 1-1 counter sub-themes, mostly from the black cards. The signpost uncommon is Cleric of Life's Bond. 
It is white-black for a 2-2 vampire cleric. Whenever another cleric enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. Whenever you gain life for the first time each turn, put a 1-1 counter on Cleric of Life's Bond. So, not too hard to figure this one out. You want to play a bunch of clerics, you gain a bunch of life, and then whenever you gain life for the first time each turn, it triggers the cleric and it gets bigger. Kind of like an Ajami's Pride Mate type effect, although it's only the first time each turn in this case. Yeah, I think that would be incredibly powerful in this format. There are a lot of clerics running around. So, our top white commons and uncommons. We'll start off with Attended Healer. This is three and a white for a 2-3 core cleric. Better have a pretty good effect. So whenever you gain life for the first time each turn, there's that line of text again, create a 1-1 cat creature token. Oh, okay. So if this thing makes one or two tokens, then I'm pretty happy with it. Four, four to five power and toughness over like three to four bodies for four mana, that's a pretty good effect. Notably, this also has a, an activated ability, two and a white to give another target cleric lifelink until end of turn. So you need another cleric on the battlefield to really start paying this one off and, and getting those cats running around. But some of your other clerics will also have ways to gain life on their own. For example, our next card, Expedition Healer. This is one in a white for a 2-2 core cleric. It is Vigilance and it has lifelink as long as you control another cleric. Clerics gaining life really seem where this one's going. I think it kind of builds itself, doesn't it? It does seem that way. I can't read this card though without shedding a tear for Colostria Healer. <laughs> Oh man, I miss Colostria Healer. That, you know, no allies here. Aldrazi are long gone. We don't need allies anymore. Now, uh, I have a feeling a pretty common play pattern in this format is going to be curving our last card into our next card. This is Angel Heart Protector. Two and a white for a 3-2 human cleric. When it ETVs, target creature you control gains indestructible until end of turn. This is a strong effect. Don't underestimate when cards give this type of effect to a, a creature that they control. Being able to be relevant on turn three where you can give your two drop the ability to attack in pretty freely. Most people won't be able to, to block effectively at that point in the game. Or in the late game, this is a decent top deck. It allows one of your maybe bigger creatures to get through what would otherwise be a trade. Maybe start getting some life again, triggering all of your abilities, that type of thing. Yeah. Next we have... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say one thing to keep in mind with a lot of these whenever you gain life for the first time effects, they also trigger on your opponent's turns because it's just an each turn thing. So... You can trigger those on blocks. Uh, any fight spells can trigger them. So keep that in mind. Hmm, that actually makes me take another look at Expedition Healer. The fact that it has Vigilance makes it go up a little bit in my book. Because then you're able to trigger based on combat damage on both turns. Next we have Nahiri's Binding. This is one white-white for an enchantment aura. Enchant a creature or planeswalker. Enchant a permanent can't attack or block. And its activated abilities can't be activated. Wow, another piece of, uh, well, this one's a common removal for Planeswalkers. I, I hope the Planeswalkers aren't very good in this format because they're not going to see too much with these solid playables running around. Yeah, and typically in the most recent formats, we've been seeing Pacifism has been a pretty, actually a pretty bad card. Like, you typically it's the, one of the best cards White has to offer. And in the last few formats, it's been pretty awful. I don't know about this one. I think in limited, that Planeswalker clause is really not going to matter too much, but shutting off activated abilities can be pretty powerful. And I think this is a slower format where that's going to really matter. Yeah, this is my top pick for, for white commons right now. I think shutting off the activated abilities and attacking and blocking, this is just strong enough. This is close enough to an O-ring that it's going to be pretty great. Of course, leaving it on the battlefield does have its downsides. Your opponent could destroy this or bounce their creature or sack it for an effect. But overall, it's pretty close to unconditional white removal i think you'll probably take as many of these as you can get in the white deck last but not least in white we have shepherd of heroes this is four and a white for, for a three four angel cleric 
Whenever Shepherd of Heroes enters the battlefield, you gain two life for each creature in your party. Now, I know this isn't a cleric that cares about other clerics, but I have a feeling in black-white you'll often have some rogues and you might have a wizard or two, maybe a warrior in white. I think if this ECVs as a 5-mana 3-4 flyer gain 4, that's a pretty big swing. That'll uh, you know shore up a, a tempo game, maybe allow you to start getting in in the air with this to close out the game and gain you enough life so that you have time to do so. Yeah, and worst case, this is coming down as a 5-mana 3-4 flyer that gains you 2 life. That's still pretty great. Like, yeah. There's just nothing wrong with this card. Yeah, it, it's maybe a little overcosted, but... I mean, think of the upside where this gains eight. <laughs> wow. Next up, we have Scion of the Swarm. This is three black black for a 3-3 three, three flying vampire cleric. Whenever you gain life, put a 1-1 one, one counter on Scion of the Swarm. Well, there's that primate effect again. And this is not every uh, just once per turn. This is whenever you gain life. This thing can get big. That's scary. And it's a flyer, unlike the primate. Yep, if you start finding a reliable way to gain life, maybe an attacking creature with lifelink, or uh, finding a way to you know, ping your opponent for, for one life or anything really, this thing can easily grow to be a 5-5 or a 6-6 flyer. That requires a pretty good kill spell, and that'll end games quickly. Next, we have Marauding Blight Priest. We talked about this one in our first pack, but uh, it's 3-mana three 3-2. Three, Whenever you gain life, each opponent loses a life. This is a fine little effect in this format, and uh, it's a vampire and a cleric, so relevant creature types all around. If you have enough drains going on, your opponent will find their life total dwindling pretty quickly. Next, we have Malakir Blood Priest. One of the black for a 2-1 vampire cleric. When it enters the battlefield, each opponent loses X life, and you gain X life, where X is the number of creatures in your party. So by itself, this is ETB drain for one. Eh, whatever. Kind of scary when your opponent is at... Uh, low life maybe this would get in for the last point or two but if you have a few other party creatures if this gains four and drains four that is a terrifying late game top deck for a two two or a two one rather yeah typically in white black you won't see the full party it's gonna be pretty hard to get that but yeah drain two on a two drop is probably worth it yeah that's a pretty strong effect especially because you're also gaining that life triggering your scions and your other core and things like that next up we have thwart the grave this is four black black and it costs one less for each creature in your party. Return target creature card and up to one cleric, rogue, warrior, or wizard creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. So black white has a handful of sacrifice effects. Uh, I think that Thwart the Grave would be a, a pretty good upside for that. And notably, there's not too many ways to make tokens where sacrifice effects go you know, really great. Attendant healer is one way and a lot of your other creatures you'd rather have on the battlefield having their effects. But I think that you're going to have uh, every once in a while some warriors or, or clerics in this deck that you might want to get back, especially the stronger ones. Yeah, I don't and, think uh, you're really happy with this card at six mana, but if you can, I think the average for parties is, you know, you're going to, it's not going to be too difficult to get two different creature types out. Um, mm -hmm. So casting this at four to get your, like two of your best creatures that they removed back. Yeah, they don't go to hand. That's, that's pretty, pretty big. You can only grab from your graveyard, so you do have to keep that in mind, but yeah, seems like a solid effect. This next one is one that I really want to be reanimating in this deck because I think it kind of needs it. This is Jana's Silencer. This is five and a black for a 3-2 vampire rogue. Eh, not a cleric, whatever. As it ETBs, target creature and opponent controls gets minus X, minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of creatures in your party. Again, I think black-white will often, it'll pretty often have two or three party members. And uh, as we saw by the uh, Blight, Breath Catabalpas or Catablipus. I never learned how to say it. 
from Theros Beyond Death. This is a very strong effect. It might look overcosted, but a 6 mana 3-2 ETB kill a creature. That is very good. Okay, that brings us to Black Green Graveyard Counters. It's kind of a chunky name for this archetype, but at the end of the day, this color pair cares about graveyard interactions and the plus one plus one counters theme. So our signpost uncommon here is the Moss Pit Skeleton. This is black green for a 2-2 plant skeleton at uncommon. It has kicker three. That's three generic. If Moss Pit Skeleton was kicked, it enters the battlefield with three plus one plus one counters on it. So if you kick it, it's a five mana five five. If you don't, it's a two mana two two. Okay, uh, nice. that's fine. It does synergize with the plus one plus one counters thing. Whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on a creature you control, if Moss Pit Skeleton is in your graveyard, you may put Moss Pit Skeleton on top of your library. Hmm. I don't like that. Was it just was it just too powerful to put it in your hand? I, I guess so. Graveyard shenanigans like this can always be a, a little busted if they go too far. And notably, this is not something like landfall, get it back. You have to put a counter on a creature. So this requires a pretty high density of putting counters on creatures. Let's say your opponent kills this. I think the joke is that you can get it back later and recast it as a 5-5, but you do have to put a counter on a creature for this. I guess cards that do both of these at once will be priority, right? Cards that are, are, are a creature that put a counter on themselves or another creature. That's really what you want to combine this with. Or maybe m multiple copies of it. Those synergize really well together. Yeah, over, overall, I'm a little underwhelmed by the Moss Pit Skeleton. I don't think it's quite up to snuff with the other signposts and commons we've seen. But let's let's take a look at the top commons and uncommons and see what kind of support this guy has. So in black, we have the Shadow uh, Skyclave Shadow Cat. This is three and a black for a cat horror, three, three uncommon creature. It has one and a black, sacrifice another creature, put a plus one, plus one counter on Skyclave Shadow Cat. Okay, yeah, that's one way to do it. You could, I guess sack the moss pit skeleton to put a counter on this and then put it back on okay there have to be better interactions than that but yeah there's also second clause here whenever a creature you control with a plus one plus one counter on it dies draw a card that That's powerful like. Ooh, i love that effect i could see playing a, a a three drop maybe one that has a counter on it or a two drop one that has a counter on it which there's a handful and then uh curving into this then attacking with that three drop your opponent doesn't necessarily want to trade there because you're just going to draw a card from it. Yeah, it also makes all of your opponent's removal awkward. Like, as long as you keep two mana up, if they point their removal at anything other than this, you just sack it in response and make this bigger. I'm game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a sweet card. I like this one a lot. I think it's one of the best cards in this uh, archetype. For sure. Next up, we have Subtle Strike. This is one in a black for an instant at common. Choose one or both. Target creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. So overall, this is a two power, two toughness swing if you use both of those modes and you're in combat. So it can act as a combat trick to save one of your creatures, kill one of your opponents, or trade up, uh, as it were. But in that case, you're kind of two for wanting yourself. It's fine. It puts a counter on things. So if you're looking for ways to do that, this is one of them. Notably, that counter sticks around. So you are getting permanent value from this. It's not just a, a one-off trick. I like this card. I think sometimes these effects are underrated, but I think if you have a density of creatures that care about 1-1 counters, it's high enough. This could be a pretty potent combat trick. You could definitely blow people out with this. Yeah, for sure. Next up is Guldraz Mucklord. This is 3 and a black for a 2-3 crocodile at common. When Guldraz Mucklord dies, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on target creature you control. Sure. 
It's a, I mean, it's two mana. It's a three mana two three, which is not great, but it does buff a creature when it dies. Sure. Yeah, it's awkward if it's the only thing on the battlefield. But you know, dying in a one one counter. I, I like cards like this. The classic three mana black creature that add, has one one worth of value in some way, shape, or form. When it ETBs, put a counter on something, or when it dies, put a counter on something, or make a one one in some way, shape, or form. Also, currently my front runner for the the coolest name in the set: Ghoul <laughs> Draz Mucklord. Come on, it's a crocodile. I love it. Next up is Hagra Constrictor. This is two and a black for a snake creature at common. It's a zero zero, so that's mm. interesting. Hagra Constrictor enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters on it. Each creature you control with a plus one plus one counter on it has menace. Okay, so hold mm. on. This puts two counters on things. So your stuff that cares about counters getting put on stuff, which we haven't actually seen any of yet, except the uh, the signpost on common, I guess triggers twice. But then it gives all your things with counters menace. That can be massive. Yeah, I could see playing this in the late game, and this instantly breaks through a board stall. Your your uh, opponent's creatures now do half as much work if it was at once parity. Now, additionally, this thing itself, uh, you know, start adding more counters to it. Get it up a little bigger, and then you've got a pretty sizable threat. Yeah, I mean, if you have nothing else on the battlefield or nothing else with 1-1 counters, this is a 3-mana 2-2 with menace, because it does give itself menace. I guess that's a little expensive, but 2-mana for a 2-2 with menace is too cheap so yeah i think this is fine yeah i think it'll have a i think it'll have a home in the decks i'm starting to see signs that this format will allow you to build out a significant board for example a hogger constrictor is pretty great in that kind of scenario where you're moving counters around adding to some things sacking creatures getting value drawing cards then i could see this being a a pretty good role player uh I, i think that also is kind of suggested by the fact that party requires a large board yeah that's true i think you do have to keep in mind that the uh, the removal in this format is really cheap. There's a lot of very cheap, efficient removal. So mm-hmm. you're going to want to keep that in mind. There, That's going to help keep these large, potentially large boards in check. But yeah, overall, I think I agree with you. Next up is Oblivion's Hunger. This is one in a black for an instant at common. Target creature you control gains indestructible until end of turn. Draw a card if that creature has a plus one, plus one counter on it. Sure. Save your creature. Draw a card. I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, at worst, this is a one-for-one, one, maybe. Uh, although, I suppose, maybe saving it from a trick, that, that'd be a one-for-one, one, but if you're chumping with this, that's not what you want to be doing. However, sometimes this will just be a clean two-for-one. Yeah, I mean, if you get that card back, you're you're really doing it. Okay, so that's it for black here, some of, the, some of the better commons and uncommons for this archetype. Next up is green. So we have Iridescent Horn Beetle. This is four and a green for an insect at uncommon. It's a three-four. And at the beginning of your end step, create a 1-1 green insect creature token for each plus one plus one counter you've put on creatures under your control this turn. That's a payoff. Yeah, for sure. And notably, that Hogger Constrictor will trigger this twice because it's it's one card that'll trigger this twice. So you get two two green insects out of that. But yeah, this is definitely like a, a high-end, sort of a top-end card for that this archetype. You're going to want to grab them. And it's kind of the only payoff we've really seen so far, apart from the signpost uncommon and i guess the shadow cat it itself is a little over costed a Mm -hmm. three four for five is a little weak but if you're able to make two one ones off of this i think you've gotten about your value then if you start making more i don't know uh, flood the board full of one ones good strategy put some counters on them yeah yeah we've been seeing a bit of a theme here with these over costed cards we've been saying that a lot and i think that also adds to how this is going to be a slower format than we've been used to Mm-hmm. most of these cards seem to be expensive to get some extra effect or some weird synergy 
So hopefully that slows things down a bit. Yeah, next, if it's, we're a five out of five five, you'd be a little more concerned about the speed. Right. Our next uh, card here in green is Dauntless Survivor. This is one in a green for a 1-1. One, one. When it enters the battlefield, put a 1-1 one, one counter on target creature. So it can enter as a 2-2, two, two, or you can pass that, that counter off to something else. It's a fine playable and an okay to drop. Yeah, it's sweet. Triggers the Horn Beetle and the, uh, the Skeleton. Yep. Next up is Territorial Scythe Cat. We talked about this in red-green. This is two and a green for the two one with trample and landfall. It puts a counter on itself. So all about those counters. I'm liking Scythecat as a as a C plus right now. I think it's going to fit in a lot of the green decks and, and synergize with all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not hard to play lands. Turns <laughs> not out. at all. So next up is Strength of Solidarity. This is one green mana for a sorcery at common. Choose target creature you control. Put a plus one plus one counter on it for each creature in your party. So green black's not one of the the main party archetypes either. You're looking at white, blue, and black red for those. But it's, again, still going to be relatively easy to hit probably two. And even with one in this case, like one mana to get one counter on it, I guess isn't really where you want to be. You kind of want to be getting two out of this before you're really considering playing it. Notably, green-black is full of other non-human or or human-esque creatures. For example, crocodiles, cats, snakes, insects, beasts. They will not be helping for your party. But I think if you have a high enough density... I'm just imagining the dream scenario where you pay one green for four counters. How often will that happen realistically? But Probably I'm never gonna... in this archetype, to be honest. The the white green deck might be able to get there with it, but... I'm still going to try. That's fair. Next up is Gnarled Colony. This is one and a green for a 2-2 beast. Uh, it has Kicker for two and a green. And if Gnarled, Gnarled Colony was kicked, it enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters on it. Each creature you control with a plus one plus one counter on it has Trample. So here's another payoff. You mix this in with your Menace guy, and I guess you're doing it. If you have this and Territorial Scythe Cat out at the same time, you can give it Trample Trample. Mm, true. <laughs> uh, that's the, in, in, they, they should do that in Arena with like Trample in all caps. <laughs> Next up, we have White Green Landfall Aggro. So this is kind of trying to capitalize on landfall triggers, sometimes repeating them. A little bit different than Red Green, whereas this can be a little bit more tricky about how it wants to do the uh, landfalls. We're going to have a lot of similar cards to some of the previous archetypes, so we'll skim through those. But our signpost uncommon is Marasa Root Grazer. This is green-white for a 2-3 beast with vigilance. Hold on. Crush the vanilla test on that one. That's, that's great. Now, it doesn't actually have a downside like you might be expecting. You can tap it to put a basic land from your hand onto the battlefield, or you can tap it to return target basic land you control to its owner's hand. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't let you mess around with modal DFCs. You can't return one that you played earlier. It just works with basics. But this is a pretty cool way to trigger landfall at instant speed or potentially bounce a land to your hand to guarantee you're able to trigger it in in a different way. Yeah, at the end of the day, this guarantees you hit your land drops for landfall. It doesn't really guarantee you ramp, but it guarantees you hit your land drops for landfall. And it's above rate with like double upside. It's just a great card. Oh, yeah. Slam this thing on turn two and just start attacking. Plus, uh, notably because it has Vigilance, you can do some pretty tricky things with it. For example, you could attack and then tap to bounce a basic or attack and then tap to play a basic. Notably, you can do that mid-combat. You can activate those abilities kind of as it's attacking. So some of the top commons and uncommons. We have Roiling Regrowth. That's where you pay two and a green to sack a land, search your library for up to two basics and put them all on the battlefield. Triggers landfall twice, maybe even a third time if you already had a land drop that term. Kazandu Stomper, we talked about at length. That's the big beast where you can return up to two. Call the Ambush, again, 
the ability to return lands in this archetype in general, not from the signpost in common, but through other ways, will make a fight spell very relevant in late game. Canopy Bayloth, our four mana, four, three friend that has landfall plus two, plus two. And last but not least, we have Rabid Bite. I toss this in here because I really do like the, uh, the fight type effects in the decks where you're having these large, green, beefy creatures running around, especially when you are able to trigger landfall on, say, Canopy Bayloth, and then use Rabid Bite, which is one in the green, to have target creature you control deal damage to target damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. If you're triggering landfall to pump your stuff's power, well, then Rabid Bite becomes a little bit better. This is also not a fight effect, right? This is a punch effect. Yeah, sorry, this is a, a bite a effect. bite effect, yeah. Yeah, bite, not fight. Next up for white, we have what is by far the cutest card in the set. Not even close. Canyon Jerboa. This is two and a white for a 1-2 mouse. All right, everyone just pause for a minute and look at that art. Are you kidding? Come on. Like, what's going on there? It is landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Hold up. This thing is a one mouse stampede. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think the idea behind this card, I saw a lot of people online were like confused about what this card, why does this card do this? I think the idea is like, picture the Lion King with the stampede where Mufasa dies. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, spoiler alert. <laughs> okay, no, I, I have no qualms saying that here. If you haven't seen that movie yet, <laughs> you live under a rock. I think the idea is that like, mice scare a lot of larger animals and so you're you're caught the mouse is causing them to to stampede that way i think is kind of the idea anyway i'm for it It, it's a cute card it is weirdly like not aggressively statted it feels like a card that wants to attack but you also kind of want it to survive because you want it to pump your things but it also doesn't need to attack that kind of weirdly statted and costed i think but the landfall trigger is awesome yeah, the question is, how wide are you able to go in this format? Will you be able to take advantage of, for example, getting two landfall triggers in a turn to pump your whole team by 2-2? Two, two? Well, that's pretty good if you have like two or three creatures and if this is one of them. But where that really fits the best is if you have a bunch of little tokens running around or a bunch of cheap, aggressive creatures. Next up, we have Fearless Fledgling. This is one of the white for a 1-1 Griffin. Landfall, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control... Put a 1-1 counter on Fearless Fledgling. It gains flying until end of turn. Speaking of incredible art, look at this thing go. Yeah, we'll Getting kicked out of the nest from on top of Hedron or something like that. Uh, I like this card. It starts off small, but you're going to be hitting your land jumps pretty consistently over the first few turns. This does a pretty good Gust Walker impression. And in the late game, it can get even bigger and even better. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because early on, it's weak enough that you really need to give it that flying. It needs that keyword in order to actually get through or really do anything it's not going to block very much but Mm -hmm. you need it to get through on attacks which this archetype wants to do later because those are counters it's big enough that you actually don't really necessarily need the flying keyword like it's still gonna be hard to to block it and it'll be a great blocker itself yeah i I think this card's great excellent flavor too once the fledgling has learned how to fly and it's big enough it becomes a pretty potent ground threat i love this next up we have kabira takedown this is a modal dfc this is one of the white for an instant. Kabira Takedown deals damage equal to the number of creatures you control, the target creature, or planeswalker. That's weird. It doesn't say attacking or blocking. Wait, are you sure this is a white card? It just kills something? And it's a land too? What is going on over at, uh, at R&D? This is great. I mean, combine it with Canyon Jerboa and some kind of go wide deck where you jam a bunch of 2-2s and token making effects. Yeah, this will be a two mana kill a thing that your opponent has. It's an instant. It's a land. 
you can mess around with the uh, playing it early or casting it late, return it to your hand with one of these various effects. This is a sweet card. Yeah, this does have a similar downside to practice tactics. You do need to make sure that your creatures are going to survive through the casting of this. This needs to resolve with your creatures intact. Mm -hmm. So definitely play around that. If you're thinking, hey, if I cast this Kabir takedown and they kill one of my creatures, it does nothing. Probably don't play it. Otherwise, yeah, it's a solid, solid removal spell in white. Next up, we have McKinney Ox. Four and a white for a 4-4 Ox. It is landfall whenever a land ETBs. Tap target creature and opponent controls. Now, we've gotten pretty used to seeing a card like this in the whatever white archetype and keyword there is in the set. There was one in Theros Beyond Death, too. Now, think about it. If this is a slower format, a 5 out of 4-4 four, four that's able to lock down some of your opponent's creatures on some key attack steps, maybe so that you're able to swing in with your large pumped team. Yeah, this seems a, a, like a decent, maybe a C. Next up, we have Prowling Felidar. This is 3 and a white for a 2-3 with Vigilance. Yeah, because that's a bad rate. But it has landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a 1-1 counter on Prowling Felidar. Gotta say the fact that the counters stick around, I'm a fan of that. Yeah, so I guess you play this on 4, it's a 2-3 with Vigilance, you pass. On 5, you play a land and it becomes a 3-4. Like, how many turns before this is actually where you're like getting value out of this? Yeah, I guess the fact that it has Vigilance makes it a bit better. In the really late game, I could see this attacking for like five or six, but you do need to get a significant number of landfall triggers. I think this will probably be like a C or C minus in the in the white landfall base decks. Yeah, that's probably accurate. Okay, next up is Black Red Equipment Party, or as I like to call it, Party Hardy. Um, <laughs> the overall theme of this deck is to uh, get those party classes together. Um, along with blue-white, like we mentioned, it seems like the way we are seeing these two different archetypes, these two different takes on the party mechanic breakdown is that blue-white seems to be a slower party archetype. It wants to get those those classes together, um, but do a little bit of, uh, sort of take its time in the process. And black-red is much faster at it. It wants to get these things out as soon as possible. It wants to be beating. And uh, well, our signpost uncommon here is actually an equipment card. This is Ravager's Mace. It's one black-red for an equipment at uncommon, when it enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. An equipped creature gets plus one plus zero for each creature in your party and has menace. Hmm. And then it has equipped two, two black red. Not bad. This turns anything into a sizable threat. Yeah, and then it's hard to block on top of it. Like, you know, a lot of these like give a creature plus whatever plus whatever effects are typically a little bit meh because, well, they don't really get you through any damage. So if your opponent can just chump it forever, it doesn't matter. But Menace gets around that. Notably, if you have no creatures in your party, yikes, this doesn't do anything. Yeah, so this is one instance of a card that cares about party cards that doesn't actually add to the party itself. So yeah, it's literally a three mana do nothing if you don't have any party creatures. But in this deck, pretty much every creature you have is going to be a member of the party. Mm, I guess that makes sense flavorfully. Like someone has to bring the mace to the party, right? <laughs> yeah, you got that. All right, so top commons uncommons. In black, we have Deadly Alliance. This is four and a black for an instant at common. It costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. And, well, it just says destroy target creature or planeswalker. Huh. I mean, that's unconditional removal. That's this is pretty a good. Yeah, I don't have it as my top common right now, but maybe depending on how the format shakes out, it's definitely one of the top three black common. Yeah, I mean, you do need your party setup, right? Uh, if, thing is, the way I see this, it's like, 
what was it finishing blow maybe i can't I, I can't quite remember the the name of the card but the five mana exile target creature effect that's five mana to get rid of something and graveyards aren't super important in this archetype or rather in this format so you're at worst you're getting that effect basically at instant speed and at best this is a one mana destroy target creature or planeswalker at instant speed if you can get a full party and get this online that's very strong that'll be this one is of the one of the decks that can do it though yeah i think so yeah th- this would be insane if it's one mana destroy target creature even at two that's still i mean that's like modern standard playable at least mm-hmm. so next up is drawn as silencer we talked about this a bit before it's the uh, six mana three two that etb target creature and opponent controls gets minus x minus x until end of turn where x is the number of creatures in your party again in this archetype this card should be coming in frequently doing minus three minus three and occasionally we'll also hit the minus four minus four threshold as Mm -hmm. well next up is vanquish the weak this is two and a black for an instant destroy target creature with power three or less so this is also kind of an aggressive deck you want to be getting in damage quickly and often and uh, this card will help you do that it's you know three mana destroy a blocker is is pretty solid it doesn't hit the big things, but it's instant speed and it, it will get blockers out of the way. Yeah, also a front runner for one of the better black commons in the set, although not currently my top pick. Next, we have Scion of the Swarm. This is the three black black vampire cleric at uncommon that we talked about earlier. It's a 3-3 flyer, and when you gain life, it gets a 1-1 counter. You're not gaining life quite as often in this deck as the black-white archetype, but it's a cleric and it's a flyer and it's still good. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that the, the party decks are kind of going to be a hodgepodge menagerie of different effects and different cards that are at home in their i guess conventional two color pair like the this cleric will you know do fine in a cleric deck and our next card will do well in its home deck but i think when you have them all together in a nice party i'm excited for some flavorful dnd-esque party shenanigans absolutely so our next card is black bloom rogue this is two and a black for a human rogue at uncommon it's a two three with menace and it gets plus three plus so as long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. This isn't something you're going to get to quickly with this deck, as it doesn't really intend to mill your opponent out. But naturally, cards do go to the graveyard, so it, it likely will hit that at some point throughout the course of the game. But it's also modal DFC, so it's a tap land on the back. Yeah, it's sweet. Play it as a land if you don't think it's very good as a two mana, or three mana, two, three menace. But then if you're in the late game and you top deck this, sweet. You just got yourself a three mana, five, three menace. And it's a rogue, so it's a separate subtype as well. So that moves us on to red. Our first red card here is Fireblade Charger. This is the one mana 1-1 that has haste when it's equipped. And if it dies, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. We talked about this in the red-white archetype. Just as good here, I think. You're still going to be playing equipment in this deck, and you're likely going to be able to equip this guy and, and lightning bolt something when it dies. Next up is Grotag Bugcatcher. We talked about him before as well. This is the two mana 1-2 Tramplo. And whenever Grotag Bugcatcher attacks, it gets plus one plus zero until end of turn for each creature in your party. Now it's a little bit more at home here than the white red deck. Typically, this is probably going to be attacking as uh, almost always it'll be attacking as a three two. Probably will frequently be attacking as a four two if it's not equipped. Um, yeah, this one definitely belongs in the in this one. Yeah. Next up is Royal Eruption, the one in a red sorcery that deals three to any target, or if it's kicked, it deals five. Just probably the best red common gonna get slotted into pretty much every red deck and our last red card here is thundering spark mage this is three and a red for a two two human wizard at uncommon when thundering spark mage enters the battlefield it deals x damage to target creature or planeswalker where x is the number of creatures in your party so again this comes down lightning bolts a creature maybe does better 
just great. Yeah, uh, this is going to be pretty close to a sand strangler or a, a chupacabra or four mana creature that ETBs to kill something. <laughs> yeah, it, it will likely be that in most situations. And uh, lastly, we have a nice little colorless card here in Relic Axe, which we talked about before as well. Like I said, you're just going to want to get any of the pretty solid equipment and all of them pretty much attaching to creatures off the bat is just making them all way better than equipment we've seen in the past. I still don't get why they didn't keyword it. It's on everything. Yeah, yeah they probably should have done it. Next up, we have Blue Black. This theme is Rogues. It's the Rogue Home Archetype, and it's kind of got a weird mill sub-theme. It's not trying to mill your opponent out, though. It just wants to get eight or more cards in the opponent's graveyard. The signpost uncommon is Soaring Thought Thief. This is one of the black for a 1-3 human rogue. It has flash and flying. As long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard, rogues you control get plus one plus O. Whenever one or more rogues you control attack, each opponent mills two cards. Well, I know I said that you're not really necessarily trying to mill your opponent out, but that effect certainly can. Yeah, I'm really excited about this archetype. This this card alone makes me excited for this. Um, but you know, being able to mill your opponent for each rogue, well, I guess this this only triggers once, right? So when you attack, it only counts if there is a rogue in combat. So you can't mill to per rogue, which makes it lower on the totem pole, in my opinion. But it's typically going to be a two mana, two, three flash flyer. Yeah. Uh, plus, this is very easily able to turn on the eight cards after just a handful of attacks and the game naturally progressing as it usually does. Mm-hmm. So some of the top commons and uncommons. We have Nemana Skydancer. This is two and a black for a two one. Again, flash and flying human rogue. When it enters the battlefield, target opponent mills two cards. This archetype is pretty clear about what it's trying to do. Get eight and then power up your rogues. Next up, we have my personal top pick for the most powerful black common and one that uh, has been a hot, hot topic from some, I guess, lore and color pie fanatics. We have Feed the Swarm. This is one of the black for a sorcery. Destroy target creature or enchantment and opponent controls. You lose life equal to that permanence converted mana cost. Uh-oh. Black can kill enchantments. What's next? Good white cards? Okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. I Actually, I would have said if we hadn't, if we did this archetype earlier, I would have said, what's next? White cards destroying things outside of combat? But we already know there is one of those, so. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, this is one of the black for unconditional removal at sorcery speed. Like, this will kill an opposing creature for a cost, which I do like as far as a color pie. And occasionally this will snipe a, uh, I guess, a relevant enchantment. I don't know. There's going to be a few of those running around in this format. Uh, it could kill a Nahiri's Binding, for example. And maybe another value enchantment that your opponent happens to have laying around. I don't know. I think this is just a, a pretty great rate. Yeah, can't go wrong there. Speaking of black removal spells at absurd rates, Blood Chief's Thirst. This is one black for a sorcery. It has kicker two and a black. Destroy target creature or planeswalker with converted mana cost two or less. If this spell was kicked, instead destroy target creature or planeswalker. Okay, so you have one of the black, kill a thing that costs two or less. Four, kill a creature or planeswalker. Uh, yeah, this is really, really good. Yeah, count me in. You really can't go wrong here. It's not Fatal Push, but I would not be surprised if this card ends up seeing some uh, some older format play, especially because it it's works on converted mana cost, which as we know in some of the older formats is pretty important. Yeah, for limited though, it's going to be... It's almost a modal card of its own. You know, one mana, you kill something that's cheap. And then if you have the extra mana, you can kill whatever you want. So next up, we have Shadow Stinger. This is two and a black for a 1-4 Vampire Rogue. Interesting set of stats there. Tap another untapped rogue you control. 
Shadow Stinger gains Death Touch until end of turn. Whenever Shadow Stinger deals combat damage to a player, that player mills three cards. All right, I see what's going on here. The idea is you want to have another rogue out as you attack with this. If your opponent tries to block it, which a three drop with four toughness is going to be pretty tough to kill in combat, it's just going to get in, mill, and then turn on all your rogues later. Now, notably, if you just sit around milling your opponent, I'm not sure all these cards work in, in tandem well enough to mill your opponent out entirely. I don't think this is going to be one of those merfolk secret keeper, go hard, mill every turn type things. I, I think you're really trying to turn on your rogues. That being said, I think that this will be able to end games. Like three cards is a lot. Yeah, you also have to consider that like we've seen a few and we're going to see more rogues that have flash. So, you know, if you have this out on three and then you are, you untap and you've got four mana available, you can attack with this and your opponent is likely not going to block because they could just lose whatever they block with. If you flash in a, a, a creature, it's also going to prevent them from attacking because you can just flash in another rogue and tap that down to give it death touch. A really solid mm -hmm. card. And I think I think incidentally some of these decks might get pretty close to milling your opponent out. But yeah, it's not it doesn't seem like the archetype is supported enough to make that your game plan. Next up we have Mind Carver. This is one black for an artifact equipment at uncommon. When it enters the battlefield, attached to target creature you control. An equipped creature gets plus one plus zero. It gets plus three plus one instead, as long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. So it's kind of weird templating. Normally you would expect to see this say, like, if you're an if an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard, it gets three plus three plus one instead. But mm -hmm. anyway, this is just solid. Plus three plus one for one mana on any creature you want. Yeah. I just think it's good. This is very scary on some of those flash flyers. Flash one in at the end of your opponent's turn, attach this on your next turn, and then Maybe you're hitting for five in the air out of nowhere. Yeah. Next up is Zulaport Duelist. We saw this in our opener. One mana for a 1-1 one, one with Flash, and when it enters the battlefield, up to one target creature gets minus two, minus zero oh, until end of turn. Its controller mills two cards. It's rogue. It's doing all the things that the rogue deck wants. Speaking sure. of which, something, uh, something interesting about the rogue deck, it's kind of playing two different games at once, isn't it? Like the milling and the attacking. Like It, it clearly wants you to be able to attack effectively once it has eight cards in your opponent's graveyard. But I just can't figure out if you're supposed to be trying to mill them or try to kill them with damage. I think you're supposed to try to kill them with damage. I think these cards, it, it will be, I think it'll come close. But in general, I think you're going to try to kill them with damage and just get as much value out of your, your cards that care about that 8 plus clause. Incidentally, you will occasionally mill your opponent out is the way I see it. Unless you happen to get a lot of ruin crabs, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, I think typically you're not going to be able to mill your opponent out very very quickly with this archetype you might be able to get there but i think i think typically you won't be able to do that it, it, normally when we see these types of effects they're on cards that you usually don't want to play if you're not planning to mill your opponent out but a lot of these yeah. cards just want to be in the deck because they're rogues so yeah maybe maybe that's maybe that's the gambit you're supposed to be playing these rogues to keep yourself alive and not really caring about attacking and then just try to mill your opponent out i don't know i definitely will be exploring the archetype though for sure so next up is Sure-Footed Infiltrator. This is three and a blue for a Merfolk Rogue at Uncommon. It's a 2-3. And it says, tap another untapped rogue you control. Sure-Footed Infiltrator can't be blocked this turn. And whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you draw a card. Well, that sounds good. That's sweet. One thing that I'm noticing here is that requires you to, you know, tap on your turn. So that means you're not attacking with one of your rogues. You're attacking in for two with a four mana card. To draw a card, yes, but... What happens if that leaves you with a totally tapped board and your opponent is playing, I don't know, like those those 
three mana three twos and, and four mana four threes that have landfall triggers. Don't you just die? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely gonna have to pick your poison here, right? Like you're either typically you're not blocking with this in that case anyway. And a lot of these rogues aren't great for blocking regardless. Mm -hmm. So it may just be better to get that extra card and try to find like a removal spell or a counter spell or something. But yeah, maybe maybe this card's not that great. I just think, uh, you know, it's it's also interesting to note that these tap another untapped rogue you control cards don't actually do well in multiples like you tap the one rogue and that's it there, there's no reason to tap more than that mm, yeah shadow stinger and sure-footed infiltrator if they're both in the battlefield at the same time they don't really play that nicely together no that's true in any case next up is ruin crab this is one blue for a zero three crab at uncommon it has landfall and whenever so whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control each opponent mills three cards Oh yeah, the crab is back, man. Hedron Crab 2.0. Well, I guess it's... 0.5? Yeah, it's a little worse than Hedron Crab. It only hits your opponent. But come on, it's a crab and it mills. What's not to love? Yeah, I mean, you're going to want to jam these. This is one of the cards that blocks well early enough that it matters. And every land you play, if you can play this on one, you're going to have your opponent by turn three, without a doubt, you will have your opponent on eight cards in Graveyard. Then start getting these in multiples. That's where you're just going nuts with a dedicated mill deck. Absolutely. I'd like to see that come together. Yeah, it is an uncommon, so that probably won't happen too frequently, but very few people are going to want to play this card if you're not in this deck. Next up is Merfolk Wind Robber. This is one blue mana for a 1-1 one, one with flying. It's a Merfolk Rogue at uncommon. Whenever Merfolk Wind Robber deals combat damage to a player, that player mills a card. And then it also says... Sacrifice Merfolk Wind Robber, draw a card. Activate this ability only if an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. So early on, you can cast, you can just attack, make your opponent mill out, and then when you've got enough cards in their graveyard, you can. And this one one is no longer doing what it needs to do. You can just sack it to get a card back. It's a decent little one drop. Then I'm noticing blue black takes a lot of game actions. <laughs> it does a lot of things, but the question is, do all these things come together to make a cohesive deck? Yeah, I think I think they will. And uh, this this little weird mill plan, it's hard to see really whether the plan is to mill them out or it is to attack and try to kill them with damage. That's going to be the puzzle to solve, I think, with this deck. But overall, I think it, I think it can come together and I think it's going to be pretty decent. Notably, a lot of the cards we've highlighted here are uncommon, so maybe the deck doesn't come together that often. That's something to look out for. But our last card here in blue is Anti-Cognition. This is one in a blue for an instant at common. It says counter target creature or planeswalker spell unless its controller pays two. If an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard, instead counter that spell, then scry two. I love anti-cognition. Like, it's it's just a very me card. I'm not saying it's a great card, but I love this card. Yeah, what I really like about this is that mana leak in the late game goes down because oftentimes your opponent has the you know additional mana to pay for the, the pay for clause. But this one, maybe in the late game, your opponent has eight cards in the graveyard. Well, then you're just guaranteed to counter that spell, and it's kind of like a, a weird essence scatter with an upside. Yeah, this, card's... this will get a planeswalker too. Right. And it, yeah, you do have to keep in mind it only hits creatures or planeswalkers, and in limited, it's likely only going to be hitting creatures in most cases. And that second clause, it still can only target creatures, even though it says instead counter that spell. It's still referring to the original creature or planeswalker you, you were targeting. So mm -hmm. you can't hit instants and sorceries with it or enchantments or whatever. But. It's good early because it can blank their two drop or three drop. And then it's good late because they have eight or more cards in their graveyard. And then you can blank any creature and you get a scry out of it. And it's only two mana. 
I, I think this is an auto include in this deck. Yeah, Scry 2 in the late game is pretty close to draw a card. This is a, a very interesting card and honestly might show up in standard too. Yeah, so or, next uh, up we have the blue-white party deck. This is essentially the slow party payoff deck and is looking to piece together that party and get as much value out of, out of the party as it can. So its signpost uncommon here is Spoils of Adventure. This is four blue-white for an instant uncommon. The spell costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. Okay. And it says you gain three life and draw three cards. Whoa. This could be a two mana gain three, draw three. Even at... All right, let, let's think about the different cases. At two mana, this is obviously nuts. At three mana, gain three, draw three. Yes, still very good. At four mana, gain three, draw three. Yeah, I'm still kind of in for that. Five? Even at five, I'm in for it. That's not that unreasonable. At six, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm still gaining three and drawing three. The question is, do you have time to get this out? If you're able to dump your hand and it's full of party members, I could see this casting pretty consistently on, on turn four, five, or six. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's going to be pretty easy to cast this on four and almost a guarantee in most of these decks to be able to cast this on five or six. Well, obviously wow. six, but... Just going two drop, three drop into spoils, that seems like a pretty big swing. Yeah, you're you're got you have two creatures out. You're gaining your life to try to stem any bleeding that may have been a may have may have been caused earlier. And then you're drawing three cards. That's massive and limited. And this is at instant speed. Yeah, it, it, this pairs really well with a lot of the instant speed removal we've seen earlier. Bounce spells in blue. And like you mentioned, the three life ensures that you have the time to, you know, make use of the three cards. Yeah, so let's let's look at some of the top commons and uncommons. First up, we have Emiria Captain. We're looking at white first. This is three and a white for a 1-1 Angel Warrior at uncommon. Okay, hold on. So it's four mana for a 1-1 and it's an uncommon. This better have some pretty crazy effect. Oh, it does. Don't worry. So it's a four mana 1-1. It has flying and vigilance. And when it enters the battlefield, you get a you put a 1-1 counter on it for each creature in your party. So, okay, worst case, it enters the battlefield as a four mana 2-2 flying vigilance. A bit, a, a bit, yeah, a bit expensive. You're not super happy about that. But it's warrior and it adds to your party, so there's that. But the the highest end is that this is a f five five for four with flying and vigilance. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, we've been seeing so many overcosted cards, and these have the potential to be s severely undercosted. Let's think about the other cases too. Let's say you go two drop, three drop, and they're both different party members. Eh, well, then this thing is going to come in as a uh, four mana four four flying vigilance, which is a huge threat. And let's say maybe one of them or, or two of them have the, the same uh, subtype. Well, then this is still a four mana three three flying vigilance. That's also a pretty good card. Yeah, I think I'm happy with there. Any lower and then I start to it starts to fall off for me. But if you can get this to be a three three reliably, it's a super solid card. Next up is practice tactics. We talked about this already. It deals damage to attacking or blocking creatures equal to twice the number of creatures in your party. So you really only need two party members to, to make this kill just about everything. And three, you actually can kill everything in the format, I think. Something like that. It's pretty close. Yeah, just about. Next up is Shepherd of Heroes. This is four and a white for a three, four flyer. We talked about this one earlier as well. This is the one that enters the battlefield and gains you two life for each creature in your party. So reliably, this is probably going to be gaining you four or six. Most likely, I would say six in this archetype. Yeah, that sounds about right. And that's a pretty big swing. Absolutely. Next up, we have Journey to Oblivion. That's four and a white for an enchantment at Uncommon. It costs one less to cast for each creature in your party. When Journey to Oblivion enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent in opponent controls until Journey to Oblivion leaves the battlefield. Again, okay. fantastic art. Look at that. 
Yeah, it's a little on the nose in my opinion. You know, it's like a journey to nowhere plus oblivion ring. It's just like you guys could have been a little more creative with the naming there, but I just like the implication that someone like got thrown or crashed through a wall somehow and <laughs> fell off a floating city or something of the like. Yeah. But still, this has the potential to be a one mana exile target not only permanent and opponent controls. Yep, this is definitely first pickle removal. Yeah, and it, it's certainly build arounding. Like you have to build around this. But even at five mana, I think it's still perfectly playable. Oh yeah, five mana to exile target on them permanent and opponent controls. That's pretty great. Uh, that, I think that's first pickable in, in almost every limited set. And when you're casting this for three, perfect. Yeah. Next up is Angel Heart Protector. This is two and a white for the three-two human cleric. We talked about this one before as well. When it enters the battlefield, target creature you control gains indestructible until end of turn. Yeah, just a solid cleric and another party member for this deck. In blue, we have Cascade Seer. This is three and a blue for a merfolk wizard at common it's a 3-3 when it enters the battlefield you scry x where x is the number of creatures in your party so minimum you're scrying one and it's all upside from there yeah this is a nice little curve filler if you're scrying two or three then you can start digging through your deck to find out what you need next or maybe find other party members that you don't have yet for your your payoffs in hand yep next up is into the royal we mentioned this in the blue green archetype it's one in a blue for an instant at common it has kicker one in a blue and it says return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand if this spell was kicked draw a card nice super super good Bounce spell, drawing cards, tempo advantage, good blue card. Next up is Skyclave Plunder. This is four and a blue for a sorcery. Look at the top X cards of your library where X is three plus the number of creatures in your party. Put three of those cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So this is five mana draw three regardless, but the more party members you have, the more cards you get to see and choose from to put in your hand. Yeah, so it's interesting. If you had no party members, for example, if you managed to fill your deck with just crabs, for example, uh, this would be five mana, draw three. But then if you have one party member, it's five mana, look at the top four, put three into your hand. If you have two, it's five mana, look at the top five, put three into your hand. This is a really neat little design. I I like this. The question will be, is the format slow enough to take advantage of it? Right. Yeah, that's really what it's going to come down to. Otherwise, it's, it's a fine card. Five mana draw three is is decent, and the extra selection is good as well. Next up is Cunning Geyser Mage. We've talked about this already a few times. This is the human wizard with the lizard. Three, two for three. (laughs) You got it that time. Yeah, kicker three and uh, bounces the thing when it ETBs. And lastly, we have Concerted Defense. This is one blue for an instant at uncommon. Counter target non-creature spell unless its controller pays one plus an additional one for each creature in your party. This card's not great, but if it has a home, it's in this deck. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to think this is, would be able to stop a kill spell every once in a while, especially because a lot of them are so efficient. Maybe if you leave one blue up, just because it's in this format, you might be able to stave off some blowouts. Well, wow, we it's been a it. while. Yeah, we did it. That's Those are all the archetypes. We, we got through them all. So let's wrap up here with the top commons in each color. Typically, for those who are new to the cast, this is where Ben and I kind of throw our top commons at each other, and we discuss a bit if we're... If we're off on any of them or if we disagree on any of them this time around we actually agreed on every single one so we're just going to talk about our choices for top commons in each color and then we'll discuss a little bit on what we are both most excited for and some final thoughts before we close this one out so top commons in each color for us we have nahiri's binding at white that's one white white for an enchantment aura enchant creature or planeswalker enchanted permanent can't attack or block and its activated abilities can't be activated you're going to see a trend throughout all these top commons. See if you can figure out what it is. So the next one is Bubble Snare. This is blue for an enchantment aura at common. It is has kicker two and a blue. 
Enchant creature. When it bubble snare enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, tap enchanted creature. Enchanted creature does not untap during its controller's untap step. Mm-hmm. Just super solid. It's about the only removal that blue has. Can't go wrong. Yep. So the, the theme that I mentioned is auras. They're all auras. <laughs> Those are our top commons. You might think that, but our next card is a sorcery. So the next one is Feed the Swarm. This is one in a black for a sorcery, which we mentioned before. Destroy target creature or enchantment an opponent controls. You lose life equal to that permanence converted mana cost. Now, this one's close for me. I think the the uh, Deadly Alliance, the one that, that gets cheaper for the party, in the decks that it works in is actually a better card than this, but it doesn't work in every deck, and I think typically that's going to be like three mana to destroy something or four mana to destroy something. So this often is probably going to be better. I also have Vanquish the Weak pretty high. The three mana instant destroy a creature with power three or less. Uh, Maybe things will shift around depending on how the format shakes out. But right now, this is just so unconditional. And if the format is as slow as I think we're thinking it is, then maybe losing four or five, six life isn't actually that big of a deal. Yeah, that's true. Next up is Royal Eruption. This is one in red for a sorcery at common kicker five. Royal Eruption deals three to any target or if it was kicked, it deals five. You should see the trend by now. These are all cheap, highly efficient removal spells. Yeah, the removal in this format is flowing, so you're going to want to try to keep your creatures protected and have backup plans because they're probably going to die. Our last one here is Rabid Bite in green. This is one in a green for sorcery. At common, target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. Yep, just all good, clean, efficient, and for their colors, mostly uh, unconditional removal, with red and green, of course, being a little limited. Yeah, so... Ben, what are you most excited for in this format? What's got you really excited to draft this one? You know, I got to say the most important thing uh, that I think came back in this set is that cowards can't block warriors. That's right. There are no cowards allowed here. I I love the flavor of of this Zendikar set. And honestly, I'm very excited to try out party. Uh, I want to see how diverse the party decks can get. Like, will black, white always be clerics? Or will we see a you know, dedicated black-white party decks show up every once in a while with the party cards in white and the party cards in black. Uh, I'm very curious to see how it goes. Yeah, for those who don't know, by the way, the cowards can't block warriors thing is a reference to a rare in this format that has that line of text on it. Um, it's an old, old line of text that hasn't been around for a while, but it's relevant with that one card in the entire format. Um, for me, my the thing that's got me most excited is the modal DFCs. They they all seem pretty sweet, especially that mythic cycle that we hinted at once in a while. Getting to slam one of those in like a pack one pick one is going to be awesome. And I can't wait to see how they tweak deck building, how they tweak the way you determine what counts as a spell in your deck or what counts as a land. It's going to be really interesting. And I'm excited to see a less aggressive format than we've had recently. Like, it's just nice to slow things down a bit, see if we can't get some of these more... Uh, janky sort of grindy decks together and and make them do work yeah it'll be nice uh, to not worry about dying turn four and five to the goblin wizardry well that brings us to our last section here any final thoughts ben uh, i mean whenever i see a new format one of the first things i do is i analyze the one drops and the two drops at common and uncommon and it, in this set i see a pretty good mix some have higher toughness than power some have higher higher power than toughness and uh some of the landfall creatures that get buffed plus two plus two are a little concerning. They're pretty easy to attack with straight through your opponent's blockers, but the removal seems pretty strong. So I expect this to be a pretty balanced mid-range format. I think there will be aggressive decks. I think there will be mid-range, and I think there will be slower ones, but ones that all try to use their resources well. There's no big go-over-the-top cards in this format. There's nothing like, I don't know, Sandworm Convergence or uh, Overwhelming Splendor, things like that. 
So I expect this to be a very interesting and resource-based format. I think we're going to have a lot of interesting decisions to make. And uh, no, I'm, I'm very excited to mess around with lands and see what we can do with them. How about you? Yeah, for me, this format definitely feels slower, like I've mentioned a few times. With all the cheap removal and a lot of it being relatively unconditional, it's going to be easy to kind of wipe up early creatures if you need to. So I'm excited for that. It's definitely seeming seeming slower than we're used to. Party decks seem to have the most support overall, I think, because of the number of cards that involve party or count as one of the party members. Kicker is a close second to that. And honestly, I kind of feel like the landfall decks aren't quite as powerful as, at least as I was expecting, but definitely not as powerful as the ones we've seen in the past with this keyword. So I'm curious to see how that plays out, if they're actually as as lacking as I think they are, or if they're if I perhaps miss something and maybe they're better than I think. Um, blue is my front runner for best color as the majority of cards that that fit there are are just good in most decks like you can pretty much put them in any deck and be happy about it and green also does this but i think blue has the most flexibility overall and uh the modal dfcs are just better than you think they're better than i think they're better than ben thinks they're better than you think not all of them take up a land slot because some of them are powerful enough spells on their own to just be spells in your deck that will occasionally come down as a land but a lot of them do take a land slot so you can get away with playing say like you know, 14 or 15 lands and then have these extra spells that double as lands. The consistency they provide is really, 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 really invaluable. Yeah, maybe it's a good thing that in-person pre-releases aren't really back to happening yet because I can just imagine everyone just losing their minds while deck building. It would take like three hours and everyone would be asking each other questions and some people would have no basics. Some people would have like 30 basics. Yeah, uh, actually, that's that's an interesting parting thought. I know as far as I'm aware, most of our listeners are coming from like the arena MTGO scene and almost everybody's doing that right now anyway. But if you are drafting this format in person, technically you have to reveal your modal DFCs when you when you draft them. It's that's a rule in in person paper drafts. You have to reveal double face cards. Mm-hmm. So it kind of feels weird because it, it, it exposes your colors and such. And there are a lot of them in this format. So I'm curious how that would affect that, but it's probably not something I'll have the opportunity to experience. <laughs> That's kind of sad. I miss drafting double face cards and getting the show off the sweet rare that I opened. Maybe next time we see flip cards. Yeah, we know these are coming back, so. Mm-hmm, that's true. I mean, come on, there's an Innistrad coming up. You think it's not going to have werewolves that transform? Yeah, well, and I think they, they confirmed that modal DFCs are going to be in Strixhaven, too. Oh, sweet. And actually even Kaldheim, I think. But anyway, Excellent. that's going to do it for us, everybody. Thank you for sticking around for this longer episode, and we hope that you are off to the races with your, your first drafts in the format. Hit up that Discord to let us know where you're at. Let us know uh, your first picks, your last picks, any deck building discussions you want to have. That's the best place to do it. We're super excited and ready to talk all things Zendikar Rising over there. Also, if you're interested, please take a look at the Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash draft It's the best way to give back to the show if you're so interested. But otherwise, that's it for us. We'll catch you next week. See you, everyone. So I have a really quick sign off because I know we've been here for, geez, I don't even know how many hours, but something kind of funny happened as we were going through the, uh, the, uh, archetypes. Did you notice what happened in the middle of rogues? I maybe, maybe not. We switched. I started rogues and you finished it. I'm not sure how it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did notice that actually. I start. I I was thinking as you were reading, uh, Merfolk wind robber, I was like, wait a minute. Didn't I talk about this one first? Gotta admit, man, I am tired. I'm going to, I don't know. Go eat and then go to bed. Yeah, I got to eat too. I, I I didn't notice that until we got to blue-white. And then uh, when we got to blue-white, I was like, wait a second. 
It feels like I did the last few cards of that one. Like I said, uh, I don't know how it happened. Uh, a rare error on our parts. Let's hope we don't make too many more. Yeah. Yeah.